0: The following is a conversation with Eugenia Kuida, co-founder of Replica, which is an app that allows you to make friends with an artificial intelligence system, a chatbot that learns to connect with you on an emotional, you could even say a human level by being a friend. For those of you who know my interest in AI and views on life in general, know that Replica and Eugenia's line of work is near and dear to my heart. The origin story of Replica is grounded in a personal tragedy of Eugenia losing her close friend, Roman Mazarenki, who was killed crossing the street by a hit-and-run driver in late 2015. He was 34. The app started as a way to grieve the loss of a friend by training a chatbot neural net on text messages between Eugenia and Roman. The rest is a beautiful human story as we talk about with Eugenia. When a friend mentioned Eugenia's work to me, I knew I had to meet her and talk to her. I felt before, during, and after that this meeting would be an important one in my life. And it was. I think in ways that only time will truly show to me and others. She's a kind and brilliant person. It was an honor and a pleasure to talk to her. Quick summary of the sponsors, DoorDash, Dollar Shave Club, and Cash App. Click the sponsor links in the description to get a discount and to support this podcast. As a side note, let me say that deep, meaningful connection between human beings and artificial intelligence systems is a lifelong passion for me. I'm not yet sure where that passion will take me, but I decided some time ago that I will follow it boldly and without fear to as far as I can take it. With a bit of hard work and a bit of luck, I hope I'll succeed in helping build AI systems that have some positive impact on the world and on the lives of a few people out there. But also, it is entirely possible that I am in fact one of the chatbots that Eugenia and the Replica team have built. And this podcast is simply a training process for the neural net that's trying to learn to connect to human beings, one episode at a time. In any case, I wouldn't know if I was or wasn't. And if I did, I wouldn't tell you. If you enjoy this thing, subscribe on YouTube, review it with five stars and Apple podcast, follow on Spotify, support on Patreon, or connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman. As usual, I'll do a few minutes of ads now and no ads in the middle. I'll try to make these interesting, but give you timestamps so you can skip. But please do still check out the sponsors by clicking the links in the description to get a discount, buy whatever they're selling. It really is the best way to support this podcast. This show is sponsored by Dollar Shave Club. Try them out with a one-time offer for only 5 bucks and free shipping at dollarshave.com slash Lex. The starter kit comes with a six-blade razor, refills, and all kinds of other stuff that makes shaving feel great. I've been a member of Dollar Shave Club for over five years and actually signed up when I first heard about them on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. And now, friends, we have come full circle. It feels like I made it. Now that I can do a read for them, just like Joe did all those years ago. Back when he also did ads for some less reputable companies, let's say, that you know about, if you're a true fan of the old school podcasting world. Anyway, I just used the razor and the refills, but they told me I should really try out the shave butter. I did, I love it. It's translucent somehow, which is a cool new experience. Again. Try the Ultimate Shave Starter set today for just five bucks plus free shipping at dollarshaveclub.com slash Lex. This show is also sponsored by DoorDash. Get $5 off and zero delivery fees on your first order of 15 bucks or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter code, you guessed it, Lex. have so many memories of working late nights for a deadline with a team of engineers, whether that's for my PhD at Google or MIT, and eventually taking a break to argue about which DoorDash restaurant to order from. And when the food came, those moments of bonding, of exchanging ideas, of pausing to shift attention from the programs to humans were special. For a bit of time, I'm on my own now, so I miss that camaraderie, but actually I still use DoorDash a lot. There's a million options that fit into my crazy keto diet ways. Also, it's a great way to support restaurants in these challenging times. Once again, download the DoorDash app and enter code LEX to get five bucks off and zero delivery fees on your first order of $15 or more. Finally, this show is presented by Cash App, the number one finance app in the App Store. I can truly say that they're an amazing company, one of the first sponsors, if not the first sponsor to truly believe in me, And, and I think quite possibly the reason I'm still doing this podcast, so I am forever grateful to Cash App. So thank you. And as I said many times before, use code LEXPODCAST when you uh, download the app from Google Play or the App Store. Cash App lets you send money to friends, buy Bitcoin, and invest in the stock market with as little as $1. I usually say other stuff here in the read, but I wasted all that time up front saying how grateful I am to Cash App. I'm going to try to go off the top of my head a little bit more for these reads because I'm actually very lucky to be able to choose the sponsors that we take on. And that means I can really only take on the sponsors that I truly love. And then I can just talk about why I love them. So it's pretty simple. Again, get Cash App from the App Store, Google Play, use code Lex Podcast, get 10 bucks. And Cash App will also donate 10 bucks to FIRST, an organization that is helping to advance robotics and STEM education for young people around the world. And now here's my conversation with Eugenia, Okay. Before we talk about AI and the amazing work you're doing, let me ask the ridiculously—we're both Russian, so let me ask you a ridiculously romanticized Russian question. Do you think human beings are alone, like fundamentally on a philosophical level? Like in our existence, when we like go through life, do you think um, just the nature of our life is loneliness?
1: Yeah, so we have to read Dostoevsky at school, as you probably know. In Russian? Yeah. I mean, it's part of the your school program um so i guess if you read that then you sort of have to believe that um you're made to believe that you're fundamentally alone and that's how you live your life
0: how do you think about it you have a lot of friends but at the end of the day do you have like a longing for connection with other people that's maybe another way of asking it do you think that's ever fully satisfied
1: I think we are fundamentally alone. We're born alone. We're we die alone. But um, and our but I view my whole life as trying to get away from that, <laughs> trying to not feel uh feel lonely. And again, we're talking about you know subjective, kind of way of feeling alone. It doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have any connections or you are actually isolated.
0: You think it's a subjective, uh, a thing. But like again, another absurd measurement-wise thing how much loneliness do you think there is in the world so like if you see loneliness as a as a condition how much of it is there do you think like how i guess how many you know there's all kinds of studies and measures of how much you know how many people in the world feel alone there's all these like measures of how many people are you know self report or just all these kinds of different measures but in your own perspective um, how big of a problem do you think it is size wise?
1: Well, I'm actually fascinated by the topic of loneliness. I try to read about it as much as I can. Um, what really, and there, I think there's a paradox because loneliness is not a clinical disorder. It's not something that you can get your insurance to pay for if you're struggling with that. It. yet. It's, it's actually proven and pretty, you know, tons of papers, tons of research around that. It, it is proven, um, that it's um, correlated with earlier uh, life expectancy, shorter lifespan, and it is, you know, in a way, like right now, what scientists would say that it, you know, it's a little bit worse than being obese, so not actually doing any physical activity in, in terms your of life. The impact on your in health. terms of impact on your physiological health, yeah. So it it's basically puts you if you're constantly feeling lonely, um, your body responds like it's basically all the time under stress, so it's always in this alert. Um, alert state. And so it's really bad for you because it actually like drops your immune system and get it. Um, your response to inflammation is quite different. So all the cardiovascular diseases actually response to viruses, so it's much easier to catch a virus.
0: That's sad now that we're living in a pandemic and it's probably making us a lot more alone and it's probably weakening the immune system making us more susceptible to the virus. It's kinda sad.
1: Yeah, the statistics, are, the statistics are pretty pretty horrible around that. So around 30% of all millennials report that they're feeling lonely constantly. 30? 30%. And then it's much worse for Gen Z. And then 20% of millennials say that they feel lonely and they also don't have any close friends. And then um, I think 25 or so, and then 20% would say they don't even have acquaintances. And that's so in the United States? That's in the United States. And I'm pretty sure that that's much worse everywhere else. Like in the UK, I mean, it was white widely like tweeted and uh posted when they were talking about a minister of loneliness that they wanted to appoint because 4 out of 10 you people in the UK feel lonely. So minister I think we don't Minister of loneliness. <laughs> I mean that I think that thing actually exists. Um so yeah you 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 will die sooner if you if you are lonely. And again that this is only when we're we're only talking about your perception of loneliness or feeling lonely. That is not objectively Fully sub, being fully socially isolated. However, the combination of being fully socially isolated, and not having many connections, and also feeling lonely, that's pretty much a deadly combination. So it strikes me bizarre or strange that this is a wide-known fact, and then there's really no one working really on that, because it's a subclinical, it's not clinical, it's not something that you can, well, tell your doctor and get a treatment or something, yet it's killing us.
0: Yeah, so there's a bunch of people trying to evaluate like try to measure the problem by looking at like how social media is affecting loneliness and all that kind of stuff. So it's like measurement. Like if you look at the field of psychology, they're trying to measure the problem and not that many people actually, but some but you're basically saying how many people are trying to solve the problem? Like how would you try to solve <laughs> The problem of loneliness. Like, if you just stick to humans, uh, I mean, or basically not just the humans, but the technology that connects us humans, do you think there's a hope for that technology to do the connection? Like, I, are you on social media much?
1: <laughs> Unfortunately.
0: <laughs> do you find yourself, the- like, uh, again, if you sort of introspect about how connected you feel to other human beings, how not alone, you feel. Do you think social media makes it better or worse? Maybe for you personally or in in general.
1: I think it's it's easier to look at some stats, and um, I mean Gen Z seems to be Generation Z seems to be much lonelier than Millennials in terms of how they report loneliness. They're definitely the most connected, you know, generation in the world. I mean, I still remember life without without a, an iPhone, uh, without Facebook. They don't know that that ever existed uh or at least don't know how it was. Um, so that tells me a little bit about the fact that that might be um, you know, this hyperconnected world is might actually make people feel lonely lonelier. I don't know exactly what the what the measurements are around that, but I would say, you know, in my personal experience, I think it does make you feel a lot lonelier. Mostly, yeah, we're all super connected, uh, but I think loneliness, the feeling of loneliness doesn't come from not having any social connections whatsoever. Again, tons of people that are are in long-term relationships experience bouts of loneliness and continued loneliness. Um, And it's more the question about the true connection, about actually being deeply seen, deeply understood. Um, And in a way, it's also about your relationship with yourself. Like in order to not feel lonely, you actually need to have a better relationship and feel more connected to yourself than this feeling actually starts to go away a little bit and then you um open up yourself to actually meeting other people in a very special way uh not in just you know add a friend on facebook kind of way
0: so just to briefly touch on it i mean do you think it's possible to form that kind of connection with ai systems more down the line of some of your work do you think that's um engineering-wise, a possibility to alleviate loneliness is not with another human, but with an AI system.
1: Well, I know that's that's a fact. <laughs> that's what we're doing. And we, we see it and we measure that and we see how people start to feel less lonely uh, talking to their virtual AI friend.
0: So basically a chatbot at the basic level, but could be more. Like, do you have, I'm not even speaking sort of uh, about specifics, but do you have a hope? Like if you look 50 years from now, do you have a hope that there's just like AIs that are like optimized for, um, let, me, let me first start, like right now, the way people perceive AI, which is recommender systems for Facebook and Twitter, social media, they see AI as basically destroying First of all, the fabric of our civilization, but second of all, making us more lonely. Do you see like a world where it's possible to just have AI systems floating about that like make our life less lonely? Yeah, make us happy, make like are putting good things into the world in terms of our individual lives.
1: Yeah, totally believe it, and that that's why I'm also working on that. Um, I think we need to also make sure that. Um, what we're trying to optimize for, we're actually measuring. And it is a North Star metric that we're going after. And all of our product and our, all of our business models are optimized for that. Because you can talk, you know, a lot of products that talk about, um, you know, making you feel less lonely or making you feel more connected, they're not really measuring that. So they don't really know whether their users are actually feeling less lonely in the long run or feeling more connected in the long run. Um, so I think it's really important to put your. To measure it. Yeah, to measure it.
0: What's a a good measurement of loneliness?
1: (laughs) Well, so that's something that I'm really interested in. How do you measure that people are feeling better or that they're feeling less lonely? With loneliness, there's a scale. There's a UCLA 20 and UCLA 3 recently scale, which is basically a questionnaire that you fill out. And you can see whether in the long run it's improving or not.
0: And that, uh, does it capture the momentary feeling of loneliness? Does it look in like past month, like, uh, this is it basically self-report? Does it try to sneak up on you? <laughs> 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 try to trick you to answer honestly or something like that? Well, it what's, is, yeah, I'm not familiar with the question. It is just
1: asking you a few questions. Like how often did you feel uh, like lonely or how often did you feel connected to other people in this last few couple weeks? weeks? Um, it's similar to the self-report questionnaires for depression, and anxiety, like PHQ-9 and GAT7 of course as any as any self report questionnaires that's not necessarily very precise or very well measured but still if you take a big enough population you get them through these uh questionnaires you can see you can see a positive dynamic
0: and so you basically uh you put people through questionnaires to see like is this thing is our is what we're creating making people happier
1: yeah we measure so we measured two outcomes. One short term, right after the conversation, we asked people whether this conversation made them feel better, worse, or same. Um, this this metric right now is at eighty percent. So eighty percent of all our conversations make people feel better.
0: But I should have done the questionnaire with you. <laughs> you feel a lot worse after we've done this conversation. <laughs> that's actually <laughs> fascinating. I should, I should probably do. that.
1: But that's that's should, should our do that. You should totally. And Start aim for
0: measuring. 80%, <laughs> aim to outperform your current state-of-the-art AI system <laughs> uh, in these human conversations. So okay, we'll get to uh, your work with Replica, but let me continue on the line of absurd questions. <laughs> so you, you, t- you talked about um, you know deep connection with other humans, deep connection with AI, meaningful connection. Let me ask about love. People make fun of me because I talk about love all the time. <laughs> But uh, what, what do you think love is? Like, maybe in the context of um, a meaningful connection with somebody else, do you, do you draw a distinction between love, like friendship, and Facebook friends? <laughs> or, <laughs> or is it a gradual? No. <laughs> <laughs> <Is> it-
1: <laughs> it's all the same.
0: <laughs> no, like, is, is it just a gradual thing? Or is there something fundamental about us humans that seek? Like a really deep connection uh, with another human being, and what is that? What is love, Eugenia? The I'm gonna I'm I just th- enjoy asking you these questions and I like seeing, you're, seeing you struggle. <laughs> <I know. laughs> Thanks. Yep.
1: Um, well, the way I see it, um, and specifically um, the way it relates to our work, and the way it was insp- it, the way it inspired our work on Replica. Um, I think one of the biggest and the most precious gifts we can give to each other now in 2020 as humans is this gift of deep empathetic understanding, the feeling of being deeply seen.
0: Like, what does that mean? Like, that, that you exist? Like, somebody acknowledging that?
1: Somebody seeing you for who you actually are. And that's extremely, extremely rare. Um, I think that is that combined with unconditional positive regard um belief and trust that um uh, you internally are always inclined for positive growth and believing you in this way letting you be a separate person at the same time and this deep um, empathetic understanding for me that's the that's the combination that really creates something special something that people when they feel it once they will always long for it again and something that starts huge fundamental changes in people um when we see that someone uh, accepts us so deeply we start to accept ourselves and um the paradox is, is that's when big changes start start happening big fundamental changes in people start happening so i think that is the ultimate therapeutic relationship that is and that might be in some way a definition of love
0: <laughs> so so acknowledging that there's a separate person and accepting you for who you are uh now on a slightly so that and you mentioned therapeutic that sounds very like a very healthy view of love, but uh is there also like a like you know if we look at heartbreak and uh you know mo- most love songs are probably about heartbreak right <laughs> uh, is that like the mystery, the tension, the danger, the fear of loss, you know, all of that. What people might see in a negative light as like games or whatever, but just just the, the dance of human interaction. Yeah, fear of loss and fear of like, you, you said like once you feel it once, you long for it again, but you also, once you feel it once, you might, for many people, they've lost it. So they fear losing it, they feel loss. So is that part of it? Like you're you're speaking like beautifully about like the positive things, but is it important to be able to uh, be afraid of losing it from an engineering perspective?
1: (laughs) I mean, it's a huge part of it. And unfortunately we all, you know, um, face it at some points in our lives. I mean, I did.
0: You want to go into details? <laughs> How'd you get your heart broken?
1: <laughs> sure. Well, so mine is pretty straight. My story is pretty straightforward um, there. I did have a friend that was, you know, that at some point um, in my 20s became really, really close to me and we we became really close friends. Um, well, I grew up pretty lonely. So in many ways when I'm building you know, these, these AI friends, I'm thinking about myself when I was 17, writing horrible poetry and, you know, in my dial-up modem at home and, um, you know, and that was the feeling that I grew up with. I, loved, I lived um alone for a long time when I was a teenager.
0: Where did you grow up?
1: In Moscow, in the Moscow. outskirts of Moscow. <laughs> um So I'd just skateboard during the day and come back home and, you know, connect to the internet.
0: <laughs> and write poetry.
1: And then write horrible poetry. And Was it love so, poems? All sorts of poems. Obviously, love poems. I mean, what what other poetry can you write when you're 17? It uh, um, could be
0: political or something. But yeah,
1: but that was you know that was kind of my yeah like deeply um, influenced by Joseph Brodsky and like all sorts nice. of poets that um, every 17 year old will will be looking you know looking at and reading. But yeah, that was my uh, these were my teenage years, and I just never had a person that I thought would you know take me. As it is would accept me the way I am. Um and I just thought, you know, working and just doing my thing and being angry at the world and being a reporter. I was an investigative reporter working undercover and writing about people was my way to connect with you know with, with others. I, I was deeply curious about every everyone else. And I thought that, you know, if I if I go out there, if I write their stories, that means I'm more connected.
0: This is what this podcast is about, by the way. <laughs> I'm desperate, alone, seeking connection. <laughs> I'm just kidding, or am I? I don't know. So what? what wait, reporter, uh, What? how did that make you feel more connected? I mean, you're st- still fundamentally pretty alone.
1: But you're always with other people, you know? You're always thinking about what other place can I infiltrate? What other community can I write about? What other phenomenon can I explore? And you're sort of like a trickster, you know, and like, a mythological character, like creature that's just jumping uh, between all sorts of different worlds and feel and feels sort of okay with in all of them. So um, that was my dream job, by the way. That was like totally what I would have been doing um, if Russia was a different place. <laughs>
0: and a little bit undercover, so like you weren't. You were trying to, like you said, mythological creature trying to infiltrate. So t- try to be a part of the world. What, what are we talking about? What kind of things what, did you enjoy writing about?
1: I'd go work at a strip club or go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> awesome. Okay. <laughs> uh, well,
1: I'd go work at a restaurant yeah. or just go write about you know um, certain phenomena or phenomena of people in, in, in the city. And the... what?
0: Uh, sorry to keep interrupting. I'm, I'm the worst. I'm uh conversationalist. What? stage of Russia is this, what, uh, is this pre-Putin, post-Putin, what What was Russia like?
1: Pre-Putin is really long ago. <laughs> uh, this is Putin era, that's uh, beginning of 2000s, and 2010, 2007, eight,
0: nine, 10. What were strip clubs like in Russia, and restaurants, and culture, and people's minds like in that early Russia that you were covering?
1: In those early 2000s it was there was still a lot of hope there was still tons of hope that um you know we're sort of becoming this uh western westernized society uh the restaurants were opening we were really looking at you know um we're trying we're trying to copy a lot of things from uh from the US from Europe uh, bringing all these things and very enthusiastic about that so there was a lot of, you know, stuff going on. There was a lot of hope and dream for this, you know, new Moscow that would be similar to I guess New York. I mean, just to give you an idea, in um year two thousand was the year when we had two uh movie theaters in Moscow and there was this one first coffee house that opened and it was like really big deal. Uh, by two thousand ten there were all sorts of things everywhere.
0: Almost like a chain like a Starbucks type of coffee house, or like you mean
1: <laughs> oh yeah. Like a Starbucks. I mean, I remember we were reporting on, like, we were writing about the opening of Starbucks, I think in 2007. That was one of the biggest things that happened in, you know, in Moscow back, back in the time. Like that was worthy of a, of a magazine cover. And uh, that was definitely the, the, you know, the biggest talk of the town.
0: Yeah. When was McDonald's? Cause I was still in Russia when McDonald's opened. That was in the nineties. I mean, yeah. Oh yeah. The, I
1: remember that very well. Yeah. Those were long, long lines. I think it was 1993 or four. I don't remember. Um, did you, what, actually did you go to
0: McDonald's at that time? Did you do the-
1: I mean, that you... was a luxurious outing. That was definitely not something you do every day. And also the line was at least three hours. So if you're going to McDonald's, that is not fast food. That is like at least three hours in line. Yeah. <laughs> and then no one is trying to eat fast after that. Everyone is like trying to enjoy as much as possible.
0: What's so your memory of that?
1: Me. Oh, it was- Insane, out of this world. (laughs) Extremely positive. It's a small strawberry milkshake and a hamburger and small fries. And my mom's there. And sometimes I'll just because I was really little, they'll just let me run, you know, up the cashier and like (laughs) cut the line, (laughs) which is like you, you cannot really do that in Russia. Or
0: so, like for a lot of people, like a lot of those experiences might seem not very fulfilling, you know, like it's. On the verge of poverty, I suppose, but do you remember all that time fondly? Like, because I do. Like the first time I drank, you know, coke, you know, all that stuff, right? Um, and just yeah, the connection with other human beings in Russia. I remember. I remember it really positively. Like, how do you remember well the '90s and then the Russia you were covering? just the human connections you had with people and the experiences?
1: Well, my my parents were both both physicists. My grandparents were both, well, my grandpa, grandfather was a um, nuclear physicist, a uh, professor at the university. My dad worked at Chernobyl when I was born in Chernobyl, analyzing kind of the everything after the explosion. And then I remember that... <laughs> And they were, so they were making sort of enough money in the Soviet Union, so they were not, you know, extremely poor or anything. It was pretty prestigious to be a professor, uh, the dean in the university. And then I remember my grandfather started making a $100 a month after, you know, in the 90s. So then I remember we started, our main line of work would be to go to our little tiny country house, uh, get a lot of apples there from apple trees. Bring them back to to um to the city and sell them in the street. So me and my nuclear physicist grandfather were just standing there and he'd selling those apples the whole day because that would make you more money than, you know, working at the university. And then he'll just tell me, try to teach me um, you know, something about planets and whatever, the particles and stuff. And, you know, I'm not Smart at all, so I could never understand anything. But I was interested as, a you know, journalist kind of type interested. But that was my memory. And, you know, I'm happy that I wasn't, um, I somehow got spared, that I was probably too young to remember any of the traumatic stuff. So the only thing I really remember, I had this bootleg that was very traumatic had this bootleg Nintendo, which was called, was called Dandy in Russia. Mm-hmm. So in 1993, there was nothing to eat. Like even if you had any money, you would go to the store and there was no food. I don't know if you remember that. Mm-hmm. And our friend had a um, restaurant, like a government half government owned something restaurant. So they always had um, supplies. So he exchanged a big bag of wheat. For this Nintendo, <laughs> the looked <bootleg> like Nintendo <laughs> And that I remember very fondly because I think I was nine or something like that, and or seven. Why is that
0: traumatic. Well, because we or just, just
1: got different. it and I was playing it, and there was this you know dandy TV show. Yeah. Um, so traumatic show in a positive sense,
0: you mean like uh, like a definitive?
1: Well, they like, took it away and gave me a bag of weed instead, and I cried like oh. my eyes out for oh, I thought days it was the other and days and days. Oh no. And then, you know, as a, and my dad said, we're going to like exchange it back in a little bit. So you keep the little gun, (laughs) you know, the one that you shoot the ducks with. So I'm like, okay, I'm keeping the gun. So sometime it's going to come back. But then they exchanged the gun as well for some sugar or something. (laughs) I was so pissed. I was like, I didn't want to eat for days after that. I'm like, I don't want your food. (laughs) Give me my Nintendo back. So that was extremely traumatic. Um, But, you know, I was happy that that was my only, traumatic experience. You know, my dad had to actually go to Chernobyl with a bunch of 20 year olds. He was 20 when he went to uh, Chernobyl. And that was right after the explosion. No one knew anything. The whole crew he went with, all of them are dead now. I think there was this one guy uh, still that was still alive for this last few years. I think he died a few years ago now. My dad somehow luckily got back earlier than everyone else. But just the fact that that was the, and I was always like, well, how did they send you? I was only, I was just born, you know, you had a newborn, talk about paternity leave. (laughs) They were like, but that's who they took because they didn't know whether you would be able to have kids when you come back. So they took the ones with kids. (laughs) So him with some guys went to, and I'm just thinking of me, when I was 20, I was so uh, sheltered from any problems whatsoever in life. And then my dad, um, his 21st birthday at at the reactor, You like work three hours a day, you sleep the rest. And and I yeah, so I played with a lot of toys from Chernobyl. (laughs) What
0: what are your memories of Chernobyl in in general? Like uh, bigger context, you know, because of that uh, HBO show, it's, it's the world's attention turned to it once again. Like, what are your thoughts about Chernobyl? Did Russia screw that one up? Like, you know, there's probably a lot of lessons about our modern times with, data about coronavirus and all that kind of stuff. It seems like there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of people kind of trying to hide whether they've screwed something up or not, as it's very understandable, it's very human, very wrong probably. But obviously Russia is probably trying to hide that they've screwed things up. Uh, Like, what are your thoughts about that time, personal and general?
1: I mean, I was born when the explosion happened, so actually a few months after. So, of course, I don't remember anything apart from the fact that my dad would bring me tiny toys, toys. Plas- pe- like plastic things that would just go crazy haywire when you, you know, put the Gagger thing <laughs> to it. <laughs> it was, my mom was like just nuclear about that. Um, she was like, what are you bringing? You should not do that. Uh, she was
0: nuclear. Very nice. Absolutely. Well done. I'm sorry.
1: Was <laughs> well, uh, but yeah, but the TV show was just phenomenal. I mean, the HBO it's, one. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely. First of all, it's an incredible how um that was made not by the Russians, but someone else, but capturing so well everything about the, you know, about about our country. Um, it felt a lot more genuine than most of the movies and TV shows that are made now in Russia. Just so much more genuine, and most of my friends in Russia were just in complete awe about the, with the show. But I think the
0: how good of a job they did. Oh my god, phenomenal! But just also, the apartments. There's something, yeah. It the so set great.
1: design. I mean, yes, Russians yeah. can't do that. We, you know, but you 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 see everything, and it's like, wow, that's exactly how it was.
0: It's so. Um, I, I don't know that show. I don't know what to think about that because it's British accents, British actors of a person. I forgot who created the show. I'm not, but I remember reading about him and he's not, he doesn't even feel like, like there's no Russia in his history.
1: No, he did like super bad or some like Irish yeah. or like, uh, I don't know.
0: Yeah, like exactly. Whatever
1: that thing about the bachelor party in Vegas, uh, uh, number four and five or something were the ones that he worked.
0: <laughs> yeah. <in. laughs> but so he. It made me feel really sad for some reason that if a if a person, obviously a genius could go in and just study and just be uh, extreme attention to detail, they can do a good job. It made me think like, why don't other people do a good job of this? <laughs> like about Russia, like there's so little about Russia. There's so few good films about the Russian side of World War II, of I mean there's so much interesting evil and not and beautiful moments in the history of the 20th century in Russia that it feels like there's not many good films on from the Russians. You would expect something from the
1: Russians. <laughs> well they keep making these propaganda movies now. Oh no. Unfortunately. But yeah no Chernobyl was such a perfect TV show. I think capturing really well it's not about like even the set design, which was phenomenal, but um, just capturing all the problems that exist now with the country and like um, focusing on the right things. Like if you build the whole country on a lie, that's what's gonna happen. And that's just that's very you know, simple kind of thing.
0: <laughs> yeah. And did you have your dad talked about it to you? Like his thoughts on the experience?
1: He never talks. <laughs> It's this kind of Russian man that just... My husband, who's American, and he asked him a few times, like, you know, Igor, how did you... But why did you say yes? Or like, why did you decide to go? You could have said no, not go to Chernobyl. Why would like a person like, t- that's what you do. <laughs> you cannot say no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's like a Russian way. It's the Russian man way. Men don't talk that much. No. Nope. There are downsides and upsides for that
0: uh yeah, that's the truth okay, so back to post putin russia or may- maybe we skipped a few steps along the way, but you were trying to uh do um to be a journalist in that time what was what was Russia like at that time post you said two thousand seven starbucks type of thing <laughs> what else what else was Russia like then
1: I think there was just hope. There was this big hope that we're going to be, you know, friends with the United States and we're going to be friends with Europe. And we're just going to be also a country like those with, you know, um, bike lanes and parks and everything's going to be urbanized. And again, we're talking about nineties where like people would be shot in the street. And it was, I sort of have a fond memory of going into a movie theater and, I, you know, coming out of it after the movie, and the guy that I saw on the stairs was like there, shot, <laughs> which was again it was like a thing in the nineties that would be happening people were you know people were getting shot here and just there, violence. tons of violence, tons of uh you know just basically mafia mobs on in the streets and then the two thousands were like you know things just got cleaned up uh oil went up uh and the country started getting a little bit richer, you know the nineties were so grim, mostly because the economy was in shambles and oil prices were not high. So the country didn't have anything. We defaulted in 1998, and um, the money kept jumping back and forth. Like first there were millions of rubles, then it got like default, you know, uh, then it got to like thousands. Then it was one rubble was something, then again to millions. It was like crazy town. That was crazy. Um, and then the 2000s were just this, these years of stability in a way, and. Um, the country getting a little bit richer because of, you know, again, oil and gas. And we were starting to, we started to look at, specifically in Moscow and St. Petersburg, to look in, at other cities in Europe and New York and U.S. and trying to do the same in our, like, small kind of cities, towns there.
0: What, was, uh, what were your thoughts of Putin at the time?
1: Well, in the beginning, he was really positive. Everyone was very, you know, positive about Putin. He was young um it's very energetic he also immediately
0: the shirtless well,
1: somewhat compared to well that was not like way before the shirtless era um
0: the shirtless era I okay so he didn't start off shirtless when did the shirtless era it's like the propaganda of riding a horse fishing 2010 11 12 yeah that's my um, favorite you know like people talk about the favorite beetles like the I don't know. <laughs> That's my favorite Putin, is the shirtless Putin.
1: No, I remember very, very clearly 1996, where you know Americans really helped Russia with elections, and Yeltsin got reelected, um, thankfully so, uh, because there's a huge threat that actually the communists will get back to power. Uh, they were a lot more popular. And then a lot of American experts, pol- political experts, uh, and campaign experts... Descended on Moscow and helped Yeltsin actually get, get the presidency, the second term for the, pre, um, the of the presidency. But Yeltsin was not feeling great, you know. In the by the end of his second term, uh, he was you know alcoholic. He was really old. He was falling off, uh, you know, the stages when he where he was talking. Uh, so people were looking for a fresh, I think, for a fresh face for someone who's going to continue Yeltsin's uh, work but who's going to be a lot more energetic and a lot more active, young, um, efficient, maybe. So that w- that's what we all saw in Putin back in the day. I, I, I'd say that everyone, absolutely everyone in Russia in early 2000s who was not a communist would be, yeah, Putin's great. We, we have a lot of hopes for him.
0: What are your thoughts? And I promise we'll get back to, uh, first of all, your love story, second of all, AI. Well, what are your thoughts about um, communism? The 20th century, I apologize. I'm reading the rise and fall of the Third Reich. Oh my God. (laughs) So I'm like really steeped into like World War II and Stalin and Hitler and just these dramatic personalities that brought so much evil to the world. But It's also interesting to politically think about these different systems and what they've led to. And uh, Russia is one of the um, sort of beacons of communism in the 20th century. What are your thoughts about communism, having experienced it (laughs) as a political system? I
1: mean, I have only experienced it a little bit, but mostly through stories and through, you know, seeing my parents, and my grandparents who lived through that. I mean, it was horrible. (laughs) It was just plain horrible. That was just awful um
0: you think it's there's something i mean it sounds nice on paper <laughs> there, there's Maybe. uh so like the drawbacks <laughs> of capitalism is that uh you know eventually there it's it's a it's the point of like a slippery slope eventually it creates uh, you know the rich get richer it, it creates a disparity like inequality of um wealth inequality, if like, you know, I guess it's hypothetical at this point, but eventually capitalism leads to humongous inequality. And that that's, you know, some people argue that that's a source of unhappiness is it's not like absolute wealth of people. It's the fact that there's a lot of people much richer than you. There's a feeling of like, that's where unhappiness can come from. So the idea of, of communism, or at least sort of Marxism is, um, uh, Is is not allowing that kind of slippery slope, but then you see the actual implementations of it, and stuff seems to be, seems to go wrong very badly. What do you think that is? Why does it go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) What What is it about human nature? If we look at Chernobyl, you know those kinds of bureaucracies that were constructed. Is there something like? Do you think about this much? Of like, why it goes wrong.
1: Well, there's no one was really like. It, it, it's not that everyone was equal. Obviously, the you know the the government and everyone close to that were the bosses. <laughs> so it's not like fully. I guess uh, there's already inequality. this dream of e- equal life. So then I guess the the situation that we had in this, you know the Russia had the Soviet in the Soviet Union it was more just a bunch of really poor people without any way to. Make any, you know, significant fortune or build anything living constant, um, under constant surveillance, surveillance from other people. Like you can't even, you know, uh, do anything that's not fully approved by the dictatorship, basically. (laughs) Otherwise, your neighbor will write a letter and you'll go to jail. Absolute absence of actual law. Yeah. This constant state of fear. Yeah. you didn't own any own anything you didn't you know the you couldn't go travel you couldn't read anything uh western or you couldn't make a career really unless you were working in the uh military complex um which is why most of the scientists were so well regarded i come from you know both my dad and my mom come from families of scientists and they they were really well regarded as you as you know obviously
0: as the state wanted i mean because there's a lot of value to them being well-regarded?
1: Because they were developing things that could be used in in the military. <laughs> so that was very important. That was the main investment. Um, But it was miserable. It was miserable. That's why, you know, a lot of Russians now live in the state of constant PTSD. That's why we, you know, want to buy, 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 buy. <laughs> and definitely, if, as soon as we have the opportunity, <laughs> you know, we just got to it finally that we can, you know, own things. You know, I remember the time that, we got our first yogurts, and that was the biggest deal in the world. Yogurt? It was already in the '90s, by the way.
0: I mean, what the was your like favorite food? Where it was like whoa, well, like this is possible?
1: Oh, fruit, because we only had yeah. apples, bananas, and whatever, and you know whatever watermelons, whatever we, we, you know people would grow in the Soviet Union. So there were no. Pineapples or papaya or mango, like you've never seen those fruit things. Like those were so ridiculously good. And obviously, you could not get any like strawberries in winter or anything that's not, you know, seasonal. Um, So that was a really big deal, seeing all these fruit things.
0: Yeah, me too, actually. I don't know. I think I have a, like, I don't think I have any too many demons uh, or like addictions or so on but I think I've developed an unhealthy relationship with fruit that I still struggle with.
1: (laughs) Oh, you can get any type of fruit, right? You can get like, also these weird fruit, fruits like dragon fruit or something
0: or. All kinds of like different types of peaches, like cherries were killer for me. I know know you say like we had bananas and so on, but I don't remember having the kind of banana. Like when I first came to this country, the amount of banana, I like literally got fat on bananas. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like the amount? Oh of, yeah, for sure. They're delicious and like cherries, the kind like just the quality of the food. I was like, this is capitalism. <laughs> this is that's pretty. That's it's pretty delicious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. It's funny. Yeah, like it's it's funny to read. I don't know what to think of it. Of um, it's funny to think how an idea. That's just written on paper. When carried out amongst millions of people, how that gets actually when it becomes reality, what it actually looks like. Uh, f- sorry, but the, the been studying Hitler a lot recently and uh, going through Mein Kampf. He uh, pretty much wrote out in Mein Kampf everything he was going to do. Unfortunately, most leaders, including Stalin, didn't read the read it but it's it's kind of terrifying and I don't know and amazing in some sense that you can have some words on paper and they can be brought to life and they can either inspire the world or they can destroy the world and uh, yeah, there's a lot of lessons to study in history that I think people don't study enough now although one of the things I'm hoping with I've been practicing Russian a little bit I'm hoping to sort of find rediscover the uh the beauty and the terror of russian history through this stupid podcast by talking to a few people so anyway i just feel like so much was great. forgotten uh, so much was forgotten i'll probably i'm gonna try to convince myself to um you're a super busy and super important person well i'm gonna I wanna to try to befriend you to uh, <laughs> <laughs> to try to become a better Russian because I feel like I'm a shitty Russian.
1: Not that busy. <laughs> so I can totally be your Russian Sherpa.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but love. You were you're talking about your early days of uh, being a little bit alone and finding a connection with the world through being a journalist. Where did love come into that?
1: I guess finding for the first time, um, some friends, it's very, you know, simple story. Some friends that all of a sudden we, I guess we were the same, you know, the same, at the same place with our lives. Um, we're 25, 26, I guess. And, um, somehow remember, and we just got really close and somehow remember this one day where, um. It's one day in, you know, in summer that we just stayed out, um, outdoor the whole night and just talked and for some unknown reason, it just felt for the first time that someone could, you know, see me for who I am. And it just felt extremely, like extremely good. (laughs) And I, you know, we fell asleep outside and just talking and it was raining, it was beautiful, you know, sunrise and it's really cheesy, but, um, at the same time we just became friends in a way that i've never been friends with anyone else before and i do remember that before and after that you sort of have this unconditional family sort of um and it gives you tons of power <laughs> it just basically gives you this uh, tremendous power to do things in your life and to um change positively
0: you mean like on many
1: different levels
0: power because you could be yourself
1: at least you know that some somewhere you can be yeah. just yourself. Like you don't need to pretend, you don't need to be you know, um, great at work or tell some story or sell yourself in some or another. And so we became this really close friends. And um, in a way um, I started a company because he had a startup and I felt like I kind of want a startup too. <laughs> it felt really cool. I don't know what I'm going to, what I would uh, really do, but I felt like I kind of need a startup.
0: Okay. So that's, so that pulled you in to the startup world.
1: Yeah. And then, yeah. And then this uh, closest friend of mine died. We actually moved here to San Francisco together. And then we went back for a visa to Moscow and uh, we lived together. We're roommates and we came back and um, he got hit by a car right in front of Kremlin on a you know, next to the river um, and died this the same, is, day, this the same is Roman? day in the hospital. This is Roman? hmm
0: This is Roman. So, and you've moved to America at that yeah. point?
1: at that point I was living. What about
0: him, what about Roman? What?
1: Him too, he actually moved first. So I was always sort of trying to do what he was doing. So <laughs> I didn't like that he was already here and I was still, you know, in Moscow and we weren't hanging out together all the time, so.
0: Was he in San Francisco?
1: Yeah, we were roommates.
0: So he just visited Moscow. For a little we
1: went bit. back for for our visas. We had to get a stamp and our passport for our work visas, and the embassy was taking a little longer, so we stayed there for a couple of weeks.
0: What happened? How, how did you, so, so how how did he? Uh, how did he die?
1: Um, he was crossing the street, and the car was going really fast and way over the speed limit, and just didn't stop on the on the pedestrian cross on the zebra and. I just ran over him. When was this? It was in 2015 on the 28th of November. So it was pretty long ago now. Um, But at the time, you know, I was 29. So for me, it was um, the first kind of meaningful death in my life. Um, You know, both sets of, I had both sets of grandparents at at the time. I didn't see anyone so close die. And death sort of existed, but as a concept. But definitely not as something that would be, you know, Happening to us anytime soon, <laughs> and specifically our friends, because we were—you know—we're still in our twenties or early thirties, and it still it still felt like the whole life is, you know, you could still dream about ridiculous things. Even mm-hmm. um, so, that was—it was just really, really abrupt. I'd say.
0: What did it feel like to uh, to lose him? Like that feeling of loss. You talked about. The feeling of love, having power. What what is the feeling of loss? If you like.
1: Well, in Buddhism, there's this concept of samaya, where something really, like huge, happens, and then you can see very clearly. Um, I think that that was it. Like basically, something changed so changed me so much in such a short period of time that I could just see really, really clearly what mattered or what not. Well, I definitely saw that whatever i was doing at work didn't matter at all <laughs> and some other things and um it was just this big realization what this very very clear vision of what life's about
0: you still miss him today
1: Yeah, for sure for sure it was just this constant i think it was he was really important for for me and for our friends for many different reasons and um I think one of them being that we didn't just say goodbye to him but we sort of said goodbye to our youth in a way it was like the end of an era and it's on so many different levels the end of Moscow as we knew it the end of you know us living through our 20s and kind of dreaming about the future
0: do you remember like last several conversations is there moments with him that stick out that kind of haunt you in your just when you think about him,
1: yeah. Well, his last year here in San Francisco he was pretty depressed, for as his startup was not going really anywhere, mm-hmm. and he wanted to do something else. He wanted to do build. He played with toyed, like played with around, uh, a bunch of ideas, but the last one he had was around um, building a startup around death. <laughs> so, having um, he applied to Y Combinator with a video that you know, I had on my computer. And it was all about, you know, disrupting death, thinking about new symmetries uh, more biologically, like things that could be better biologically for for humans. And at the um, the same time, having those um, digital avatars, these kind of AI AI avatars that would store all the memory about a person that he could interact with.
0: What year was this? 2015. Well, right it's before that, his
1: death. So it was like a couple of months before that, he recorded that video. And so I found it on my computer when um, it was in our living room. He never got in, but um, he was thinking about it a lot somehow.
0: Does it have the digital avatar idea? Yeah. That's so interesting.
1: Well, he just says, well, that's in his, yeah, it, the pitch has this idea and he he talks about like, I want to rethink how people grieve and how people talk about death.
0: Why well, was he interested in this. I, I,
1: is it a- <laughs> Maybe someone who's depressed <laughs> yeah. is like naturally inclined thinking about that. But I just felt, you know, this year in San Francisco we just had so much um, I was going through a hard time, he was going through a hard time, and we were definitely I was trying to make him just happy somehow <laughs> to make him feel better. And it felt like, you know, this um, I don't know, I just felt like I was taking care of of him a lot. And he almost started to feel better. And then that happened and I don't know. I just felt, I just felt lonely again, I guess. And that was, you know, coming back to San Francisco in December or help, you know, I helped organize the funeral, help help his parents. And I came back here and it was a really lonely apartment, a bunch of his clothes everywhere and Christmas time. And I remember I had a board meeting with my investors and I just couldn't talk about like, had to pretend everything's okay. And, you know, I'm just working on this company. Um. Yeah, it was re- definitely a very, very tough. Tough time.
0: Do you think about your own mortality? You said, uh, you know, we're young. the 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 possibility of doing all kinds of crazy things is still out there. Is still before us, but uh, it can end any moment. Do you think about your own ending at any moment?
1: Unfortunately, I think about way too about it way too much. It's somehow after Roman, like every year after that, I started losing people that I really love. I lost my grandfather the next year. My you know, the the person who would explain to me, you know, what the universe is made of. Even well, though that well I could while never you're selling apples. <laughs> while selling apples and then I lost another close friend of mine and um and it just made me very scared. I have tons of fear about about death. That's what makes me not fall asleep oftentimes and just go in loops. And um, and then as my therapist, you know, recommended me, I open up uh, some nice calming images <laughs> with a voiceover, and it calms me down. Oh, for um, sleep. Yeah. yeah, I'm really scared of death. This is a big. I definitely have tons of. I guess some. Pretty big trauma about it and um, oh. still working it through.
0: There's a philosopher, Ernest Becker, who wrote a book, um, Denial of Death. I'm not sure if you're familiar with any of those folks. Um, there's a, in psychology, a whole field called terror management theory. Sheldon, who's just on the podcast, he wrote the book. He was the, we talked for four hours about death. Uh, a <laughs> fear of death. Uh, but his his whole idea is that um, Ernest Becker, I think I've, I find this idea really compelling is uh, that everything human beings have created, like our whole motivation in life is to uh, create, like escape death. It's to try to uh, construct an illusion of um, that we're somehow immortal. So, like everything around us, this room, your startup, your dreams, all everything you do is a kind of um, creation of uh, a brain, unlike any other mammal or species, is able to be cognizant of the fact that it ends for us. I, I think so, you know, there's, there's the question of like the meaning of life that you know, you look at like what drives us uh, humans. And when I read Ernest Becker that I highly recommend people read, is the first time I, this. it it felt like this is the right thing at the core. Uh, Sheldon's work is called Warm at the Core. So he's saying it's, I think it's uh, William James, he's quoting or whoever is like the, the thing, what is at the core of it all? Sure, there's like love, you know, Jesus might talk about like, love is at the core of everything. I, I don't, you know, that's the open question. What's at the, you know, it's turtles, turtles, but it can't be turtles all the way down. What's, <laughs> it, what's at the, at the bottom. And uh, Ernest Becker says the fear of death and the way, in fact, uh, cause you said therapist and calming images, his whole idea is, um, you know, we, we want to bring that fear of death as close as possible to the surface because it's um and like meditate on that uh and and use the clarity of vision that provides to uh you know to live a more fulfilling life to um to live a more honest life to to discover you know there's something about you know being cognizant of the finiteness of it all that might result in um in the most fulfilling life so that's the that's the dual of what you're saying because you kind of said it's like I unfortunately think about it too much. It's a question whether it's good to think about it because I I've I'm I, again I talk about way too much about love and probably death. And when I ask people, or friends, which is why I probably don't have many friends, <laughs> are you afraid of death? I think most people say they're not. They're not. What well, they they say they're um. They're afraid, you know, it's kind of almost like they see death as this kind of like a uh, paper deadline or something, and they're afraid not to finish the paper before the paper, like, like I'm afraid not to finish um, the goals I have, but it feels like they're not actually realizing that this thing ends, like really realizing, like really thinking, as Nietzsche and all these philosophers, like thinking deeply about it. <laughs> Like, uh, the very thing that, you know, um, like when you think deeply about something, you can just, you can realize that you haven't actually thought about it. (laughs) Uh, yeah. And I, and when I think about death, it's like, um, it can be, it's terrifying. It it feels like stepping outside into the cold where it's freezing and then I have to like hurry back inside where it's warm. Uh, (laughs) But like, I think there's something valuable about stepping out there into the freezing cold. Uh, Most definitely.
1: (laughs) When I talk to my mentor about it, he always uh, tells me, well, what dies? There's nothing there that can die. (laughs) But I guess that requires... Well, in, in Buddhism, one of the concepts that are really hard to grasp and that people spend all their lives meditating on would be, Anatta, which is the concept of non-not self, and kind of thinking that you know if you're not your thoughts, which you're obviously not your thoughts because you can observe them, and not your emotions, and not your body, then what is this? And if Hi. you go really far, then finally you see that there's not self. There's this concept of not self. So once you get there, how can that actually die? What is dying?
0: Right, <laughs> well, you're just a bunch of molecules. Stardust.
1: <laughs> but that is very, um, you know, very advanced um, spiritual work for me. <laughs> I'm definitely <laughs> just, definitely not. <laughs> oh my God, no, I have, uh, I think it's very, very useful. It's just the fact that maybe being so afraid is not useful and mine is more, I'm just terrified. Like it's really makes me.
0: Um, on a personal level.
1: <laughs> on a personal level. I'm terrified. <laughs>
0: How do you overcome that?
1: I don't, I'm still trying to.
0: (laughs) Have pleasant images?
1: Well, pleasant images get me uh, to sleep. And then during the day I can distract myself with other things like talking to you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad we're both doing the same exact thing. Okay, good. (laughs) Is there other, like, is there moments since you've uh, lost Roman, that you had like moments of like bliss and like that you've forgotten that you have achieved that Buddhist like level of like (laughs) what can possibly die. I'm part like uh, losing yourself in the moment, in the ticking time of like this universe. And you're just part of it. For a brief moment and just enjoying it?
1: Well, that goes hand in hand. I remember, I think a day or two after he died, we went to finally get his passport out of the embassy and we're driving around Moscow. And it was, you know, December, which is usually there's never sun in <laughs> Moscow in December. And somehow it was an extremely sunny day. And we were driving with a um, close friend. Um, and I remember feeling for the first time, maybe this just moment of um, incredible clarity and somehow happiness, not like happy happiness, but happiness. And it's just feeling that, you know, um, I know what the universe is sort of about, whether it's good or bad. Um, and it wasn't a sad feeling. It was probably the most beautiful feeling that you can ever um, achieve. And you can only get it when something Oftentimes when something traumatic like that happens. um, But also if you just, you really spend a lot of time meditating and looking at the nature, doing something that really gets you there. But once you're there, I think when you uh, summit a mountain, a really hard mountain, you you inevitably get there. That's just a way to get to the state. But once you're in this state, um, you can do really big things, I think.
0: Yeah. Sucks it doesn't last forever. So Bukowski talked about, like, love, love is a fog. And, like, it's uh, when you w- wake up in the morning, it's it's there, but it eventually dissipates. It's really sad. Nothing lasts forever. <laughs> but I definitely like doing this push-up and running thing. There's moments, I had, a, I had a couple moments, like, I'm not a crier. I don't cry. But there's moments where I was, like, face down on the <laughs> carpet, like, with tears in my eyes is interesting. And then that, that complete like, uh, yeah, there's a lot of demons. I've got demons, had to face them. Funny how running makes you face your demons. But uh, at the same time, the flip side of that, there's a few moments where I was in bliss oh. and all of it alone, which is funny.
1: It's yeah. beautiful. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> but definitely pushing yourself physically, one of it for sure. Yeah, it's, oh.
0: yeah. Like you said, I mean, you, you were speaking as a metaphor of Mount Everest, but it also works like literally, I think physical endeavor somehow. Yeah, there's something. I mean, war monkeys, apes, whatever. Physical, there's a physical thing to it.
1: But there's something to this f- pushing yourself physical physically, but alone that happens when you're doing like things like you do or strenuous like workouts or you know rowing across the atlantic or yeah. like marathons that's why i love watching marathons and you know it's so boring <laughs> but you can see them that getting there
0: so the other thing i don't know if you know there's a guy named david goggins he's uh he basically uh so he's been either email on the phone with me every day through this so i haven't been exactly alone but he—he's kind of—he's the—he's the devil on the devil's shoulder. Uh, so he's like the worst possible human being in terms of giving you a advice. Like he has um, through everything I've been doing, he's been doubling everything I do. So he—he's insane. Uh, he's a, this Navy SEAL person. Uh, He's wrote this book, Can't Hurt Me. He's basically one of the toughest human beings on earth. He ran all these crazy ultra marathons in the desert. He set the world record number of pull-ups. He just does everything where it's like, he, like, how can I suffer today? He figures that out and does it. Yeah, that, um, whatever that is, uh, that process of self-discovery is really important. I actually had to turn myself off from the internet Mostly, because I started this like workout thing, like a happy go getter, with my like headband and like, uh, (laughs) like just like, uh, because a lot of people were like inspired and they're like, yeah, we're gonna exercise with you, and I was yeah, great, you know, but then like, I realized that this this journey can't be done together with others. This has to be done alone. So out of the moments of uh, love, out of the moments of loss. Can we uh, talk about your journey of finding, I think, an incredible idea, an incredible company and incredible system and replica? How did that come to be?
1: So yeah, so I was a journalist and then I went to business school for a couple of years to um, just see if I can maybe switch gears and do something else with 23. And then I came back and started working for a businessman in Russia who built the first 4G network um, in our country and was very visionary and asked me whether I want to do fun stuff together. (laughs) Um, And we worked on a bank. Um, The idea was to build a bank on top of um, a telco. So that was 2011 or 12. um, And a lot of telecommunication company, um, mobile network operators, didn't really know what what to do next in terms of you know new products new revenue and this big idea was that you know um you put a bank on top and then and then all work, works out basically your prepaid account becomes your bank account and um you can use it as as your bank uh so you know a third of a country wakes up as as your bank client um but we couldn't quite figure out what what would be the main interface to interact with the bank the problem was that most people didn't have smart uh, smartphones back in the time. Uh, in Russia, the penetration of smartphones was low. Um, people didn't use mobile banking or online banking on their computers. So we figured out that SMS would be the best way because uh, that would work on feature phones. Uh, wow. But that required some chatbot technology, <laughs> which I didn't know anything about, um, obviously. So I started looking into it and saw that there's nothing really <laughs> Well, there was just nothing really. So the, the
0: idea is through SMS be able to interact with your bank account.
1: Yeah, and then we thought, That's well, kind of cool. since you're talking to a bank account, why can't, this, can't we use more of uh, you know, some behavioral ideas? And why can't this uh, banking chatbot be nice to you and really talk to you sort of as a friend? This way you develop more connection to it. Mm-hmm. Retention is higher, people don't churn. And so I went to very depressing um, uh, Russian cities to, to test it out um i went to i remember three different towns with the um to interview potential users um so people used it for a little bit cool and I went to talk to them um like and we pretty were part,
0: poor towns
1: very poor towns, mostly towns that were um you know sort of factories uh mono towns they were building something and then the factory went away, and it was just a bunch of very poor people um and then we went to a couple that weren't as dramatic, but still. The one I remember really fondly was this woman that worked at a glass factory, and she talked to a chatbot. Um, and she was talking about it, and she started crying during the interview because she said, no one really cares for me that much. And um, so to be clear, that was the my only endeavor in programming, <laughs> that chatbot. So it was really simple. It was literally just a few if this, then that rules and um, it was incredibly simplistic. Uh,
0: and still, that made her. And that really feel made something.
1: her emotional. And she said, you know, I only have my mom and my um, my husband, and I don't have any more really in my life. And that was very sad. But at the same time, I felt, and we had more interviews uh, in a similar vein. And what I thought in the moment was like, well, uh, it's not that the technology is ready, because definitely in 2012, technology was not ready for. For that, but, um, humans are already, unfortunately, so this project would not be about like tech capabilities it would be more about human vulnerabilities, but um, there's something so so powerful around about conversational um AI that I saw then that I thought is definitely worth putting in you know, a lot of effort into so in the end of the day, we solved the banking project um but my then boss um was also my mentor and. Really, really close friend um told me, Hey, I think there's something in it, and you should just go work on it and I was like well what what product? I don't know what what I'm building He's like, You'll figure it out <laughs> and um you know, looking back at this, this was a horrible idea to work on something without knowing what it was, <laughs> which is maybe the reason why it took us so long, but we just decided to work on the conversational tech to see what it you know there were no chatbot um Constructors or programs or anything that would allow you to actually build one at the time—that uh, was the era of, by the way, Google Glass, which is why you know some of the investors, like seed investors, we talked with, were like, "Oh, you should totally build it for Google Glass." If not, we're not—I don't think that's interesting.
0: <laughs> Did you bite on that idea?
1: Um, no, <laughs> okay, because okay. I wanted to be to do text first because I'm a journalist, so I was um, fascinated by just texting.
0: So, you thought so the emotional um that interaction that the the woman had like so do you think you could feel emotion from just text?
1: yeah, I saw something in just this pure texting, and also thought that we should first start start building for people who really need it versus people who have Google Glass, uh if you know what I mean, and I felt mm-hmm. like the early adopters of Google Glass might not be overlapping with people who are really lonely and might need some you know someone to talk to. Um, But then we really just focused on the tech itself. We just thought, what if we just, you know, we didn't have a product idea in the moment and we felt, what if we just look into um, building the best conversational constructor, so to say, use the best tech available at the time. And that was before the first paper about deep learning applied to dialogues, which happened in 2015, in August, 2015, uh, which Google published.
0: Uh, Did you you follow the work of Lubner Prize and like all the sort of non-machine learning chatbots?
1: Yeah, what really struck me was that, you know, there was a lot of talk about machine learning and deep learning, like big data was a really big thing. Everyone was saying, you know, the business, world, big data, 2012 was the biggest. Kaggle competitions were, you know, um, (laughs) important. But that was really the kind of upheaval. People started talking about machine learning a lot. Um, but it was only about images or something else. And it was never about conversation. As soon as I looked into the conversational tech, it was all about something really weird and very outdated and very marginal and felt very hobbyist. It was yeah. all about Lord Brunner Prize, which was won by a guy who built a chatbot to talk like a Ukrainian teenager. It was just a gimmick. And somehow people picked up those gimmicks. And then you know, the most famous chatbot at the time was Eliza from 1980s, which was really bizarre, yeah. or a Smarter Child on AIM.
0: The funny thing is, it, w- it felt at the time not to be that popular, and it still doesn't seem to be that popular. Like, uh, people talk about the Turing test, uh, people like talking about it philosophically, journalists like writing about it, but as a technical problem. Like, people don't seem to really wanna solve the open dialogue, like, they they're not obsessed with it. Even folks are like, I've, in, you know, in Boston, the Alexa team, even they're not as obsessed with it as I thought they might be.
1: Why not? What do you think?
0: So you know what you felt like? You felt with that woman when she felt something by reading the text. I feel the same thing. There's something here. What you felt? I feel like Alexa folks and just the machine learning world. Doesn't feel that that there's something here, because they see as a technical problem. It's not that interesting for some reason. Um, it could be argued that maybe as, in, as a purely sort of natural language processing problem, it's not the right problem to focus on because there's too much subjectivity. That that thing that the woman felt like crying, like if 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 your benchmark inclu- includes a woman crying. <laughs> that doesn't feel like a good benchmark. That's a good <laughs> test. But to me, there's something there. That's You could have a huge impact, but I don't think the machine learning world likes that, the human emotion, the subjectivity of it, the fuzziness, the fact that with maybe a single word, you can make somebody feel something deeply. What is that? It doesn't feel right to them. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know why that is. is. I'm. That's why I'm excited um, uh, when I discovered your work? It feels wrong to say that. It's not like I'm <laughs> I'm giving myself props for, for Googling and for <laughs> for becoming a for uh for, for our I guess mutual friend uh, uh, introducing us. But I'm so glad that you exist and what you're working on. But I have the same kind of if we could just backtrack a second, because I have the same kind of feeling that there's something here. Um in fact I've been working on a few things that are kind of crazy and very different from your work. I think I think they're I think they're too crazy, but the
1: like what? <laughs> I don't like...
0: have to know. <laughs> <laughs> no, all right. We'll, we'll 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 talk about it more. I I feel like it's harder to talk about things that have failed and are failing while you're a failure. <laughs> like okay. it's easier for you because you're already successful just on some measures.
1: <laughs> Tell it to my board.
0: <laughs> well, you're, you're. Um, I think I think you've demonstrated success in a lot of benchmarks. It's easier for you to talk about failures for me. I'm in the um, the bottom currently of the of the success. Oh,
1: Max, you're way too humble.
0: <laughs> no. So it's it's hard for me to know, but there's something there. There's something there. And I think you're, um, you're exploring that and you're discovering that. Yeah. It's been, so it's been surprising to me, but I, I uh, you've mentioned this idea that you, you thought it wasn't enough to start a company or start efforts based on, it feels like there's something here. Like, uh, what did you mean by that? Like, you should be focused on creating a,
1: like you should have a product in mind. Is that what you meant? It just took us a while to f- discover the product. Cause it all started with a hunch of like, um, of me and my mentor and just sitting around and he was like, well, this, that's it. There's, that's the, you know, the Holy Grail is there. There's like, <laughs> there's something extremely powerful in, uh, in, in conversations. And there's no one who's working on machine conversation from the right angle, so to say. Um, I feel like that's still true. Is that, am I crazy? It feels oh, no, like, I totally feel that's still true, which is, I think it's mind-blowing.
0: Yeah. I, you know what it feels like? I, I wouldn't even use the word conversation because I feel like it's the wrong word. It's like uh, yeah, <laughs> machine connection or something. I don't know. Because uh, conversation, you start drifting into natural language immediately. You start drifting immediately into all the benchmarks that are out there. But I feel like it's, like, the personal computer days of this. Like, I feel like we're, like, in the early days with, like, the, the, the Wozniak and all them, like, where it was the same kind of, it was a very small niche group of people who are, who are all kind of Lobner Price type people. Yeah. And. and, <laughs> hobbyists. and like, hobbyists. But, like, not even hobbyists with big dreams. Like.
1: No, hobbyists with a dream to trick like a jury. Yeah. Which is like a weird, by the way, by the way, very weird. So if we think about conversations, first of all, when I have great conversations with people, um, I'm not trying to test them. So for instance, if I try to break them, like if I'm actually playing along, I'm part of it. Right. If I was trying to break it, break this person, or test whether he's gonna give me a good conversation, it would have never happened. So the whole um the whole problem with testing conversations is that um, you can't put it in front of a jury because then you have to go into some Turing test mode where is it responding to all my factual questions right? Or right. Um, so it really has to be something in the field where people are actually talking to it because they want to, not because we're just trying to break it. Uh, and it's working for them because this the weird part of it is that it's uh, it's very subjective. It takes two to tangle here fully. Like if you're not trying to have a good conversation, if you're trying to test it, then it's gonna break.
0: (laughs) I mean, any person
1: would break, (laughs) to be honest. Like if I'm not trying to even have a conversation with you, you're not gonna give it to me. You know, if I keep asking you like some random questions or um, jumping from topic to topic, that wouldn't be, which I'm probably doing, but but that probably wouldn't um, contribute to the conversation. So I think the problem of testing, um, so there should be some other metric How do we evaluate whether that conversation was uh, powerful or not? Which is what we actually started with. And I think those measurements exist and we can test on those. But um, what really struck us back in the day and what's still eight years later is still not resolved. um, And I'm not seeing tons of groups working on it. Maybe I just don't know about them. Um, It's also possible. But the interesting part about it is that most of our days we spent talking. (laughs) And we're not talking about, like those conversations are not turn on the lights or uh, customer support problems or um, some other task oriented things. These conversations are something else. And then somehow they're extremely important for us. And when we don't have them, (laughs) then we feel deeply unhappy, potentially lonely, which as we know, you know, creates tons of risk for our health as well. and so this is most of our hours as humans. And somehow no one's trying to replicate that. <laughs> and um,
0: not even study it that
1: well. And not even study that well. So when we jumped into that in 2012, I looked first at like, okay, what's the chatbot? What's the state of the art chatbot? And you know, those were the Lobner Prize days. But I thought, okay, so what about the science of conversation? Clearly there has been tons of there have been tons of, you know scientists or people that academics that looked into the conversation. So if I want to know everything about it, I can just read about it. Um, and there's not much really. There's There are conversational analysts who are basically just um, listening to uh, speech to different conversations, um, annotating them. And then, I mean, that's not really used for much. That's the, that's the field of theoretical ling, uh, linguistics, yeah, which linguistics. is- like barely useful. Uh, it's very marginal, even in their space. Like no one really is excited. And I've I've never met a theoretical theoretical linguist who's like I can't wait to work on the conversation and okay. analytics. That is just something very marginal, uh, sort of applied to like writing scripts for salesmen when they analyze which uh, mm-hmm. conversation strategies were most successful for sales. Okay, so that was not <laughs> very helpful. Then I looked a little bit deeper, and then they you know. If, whether there were any uh books written on what you know really contributes to a great conversation <laughs> that was really strange because most of those were um n l p books which uh, which is neuro linguistic programming <laughs> which oh, right, is so, right. <laughs> which is not the n l p that I was expecting it to be but it was mostly um some psychologist richard bandler i think came up with that who was this big guy in a leather vest that uh, could program your mind wow. by talking to you. and Like so,
0: how to be charismatic and charming and influential as people, all those books, yeah.
1: Pretty much, but it was all about like through conversation reprogramming you. Repro- so getting to some, so that was, I mean, yeah, probably not very, <laughs> very true. And um, um, that didn't seem working very much even back in the day. And then there were some other books, like, I don't know, uh, mostly just self-help books around how to be the best conversationalist, or um, how to make people like you, or some other stuff like Dale Carnegie or whatever. Uh, and then there was this one book, "The Most Human Human" by Brian Christensen that really was important for me to read back in the day because he was on the um, human side. Um, he was on one of the um, he was taking part in the Lowney Prize, but not as a um, as a human who's not a jury, but who's pretending to be, who's basically, you have to tell a computer from a human, and he was the human. Uh, so you would either get him or a computer. Um, and he would, his whole book was about how do people, what makes us human in conversation. Wow. And that was a little bit more interesting, because that, that at least someone started to think about what, what exactly makes me human in conversation and um, makes people believe in that. But it was still about tricking. It was still about imitation game it was still about okay well, what what kind of parlor tricks can we throw in the conversation to make you feel like you're talking to a human not a computer and it was definitely not about thinking what is that ex- was it, what it um what is it exactly that we're getting from talking all day long with other humans i mean we're definitely not just trying to be tricked you yeah. know, or it's not just enough to know it's a human it's something we're getting there can we measure it and can we like put the um computer to the same measurement and see whether you can talk to a computer and get the same results.
0: Yeah. I mean, so first of all, a lot of people comment that they think I'm a robot. It's very possible. I am a robot. And this whole thing, I totally agree with you that the test idea is fascinating. And I looked for books unrelated to this kind of, uh, so I'm afraid of people. I'm generally introverted and quite possibly a robot. I literally Googled like how to talk to people and like, how <laughs> like, <laughs> How to have a good conversation for the purpose of this podcast? Because I was like, I can't, I can't make <laughs> eye contact with people. I can't like. Uh, how are...
1: <laughs> I do Google that a lot too. You're probably reading a bunch of FBI negotiation tactics. Is that is that what you're getting? Because so, well, seeing.
0: everything you've listed, I've gotten. There, there's been very few good books on um, even just like how to interview well. It's it's uh, it's rare. So what I end up doing often is i watch like with a critical eye it's just so different when you just watch a conversation uh like just for the fun of it just as a human and if you watch a conversation it's like trying to figure out why is this awesome um i'll listen to a bunch of different styles of conversation i mean uh i'm a fan of uh, the podcast joe rogan he's um uh, you know, people can make fun of him, or whatever, and uh, and dismiss him. But I I think he's an incredibly artful conversationalist. He can pull people in for hours. Uh, and uh, there's another guy I watch a lot. He hosted a late night show. His name is Craig Ferguson. Mm-hmm. He uh, so he's like very kind of flirtatious, uh, but there's a um, magic about his like. About the connection he can create with people, how he can put people at ease, and just like I see, I have already start sounding like those I know pee people or something. <laughs> I'm not. I don't mean it in that way. I don't mean like how to charm people or put them at ease and all that kind of stuff. It's just like, what is that? Why is that fun to listen to that guy? Why is that fun to talk to that guy? What is that? Because he's not saying. I mean, it's, it's so often. Uh, boils down to uh, a kind of wit and humor, but not really humor. It's like, I don't know. I I, have trouble actually uh, even articulating correctly, Um, but it feels like there's something going on that's not too complicated that could be learned, uh, and it's not similar to... uh, yeah, to like, like you said, like the touring test. It's something else.
1: I, I'm thinking about it a lot, all the time. <laughs> I do think about it all the time. Um, but I think when we were looking, so we started the company, we just decided to build the conversational tech. We, we thought, well, there's nothing for us to build this chat bot that we want to build. So let's just first focus on building, you know, um, some tech, building the tech side of things. Um, without a product in mind. Without a product in mind. We added like a demo um, chatbot that would recommend you restaurants and talk to you about restaurants, just to show something simple to people that people could re- you know, relate to and um, could try out and see whether it works or not. But we didn't have a product in mind yet. We thought we would try a bunch of chatbots and figure out our consumer application. And we sort of remembered that we wanted to build that kind of friend, that sort of connection that we saw in the very beginning. But then we got to Y Combinator and moved to San Francisco and forgot about it. You know, everything is, uh, then it was just this constant grind. How do we get funding? How do we get this? Um, you know, investors were like, just focus on one thing, just get it out there. So somehow we start started building a restaurant recommendation chatbot for real uh, for a little bit, not for too long. <laughs> and then we tried building 40, 50 different chatbots. And then all of a sudden we wake up and everyone is obsessed with chatbots. Um, somewhere in 2016 or end of 15, people started thinking that that's really the future. That's the new, you know, the new apps will be chatbots. Oh, right. Um, and we were very perplexed because people started um, coming up with companies that I think we tried most of those chatbots already and and there were like no users. Uh, but still people were coming up with um, a chatbot that would tell you weather and bring you news and this and that. And we couldn't understand whether, it were, you know, we were, just didn't execute well enough, or people are um, not really, people are confused and are gonna find out the truth, the truth that people don't need chatbots like that.
0: So the basic idea is that you use chatbots as the interface to whatever to application, something. to yeah. something.
1: The idea that was like this perfect universal interface to anything. When I looked at that, um, it just made me very perplexed because I didn't think, I didn't understand how that would work because I think we tried most of that <laughs> and uh, and none of those things worked. Uh, and then again, that
0: craze has done, died down, right?
1: Fully. I think now it's impossible to get anything funded if it's a chatbot.
0: I think it's similar to, uh, sorry to interrupt, but there's, uh, there's times when people think like with gestures, you can control devices, like basically gesture based control of things. It feels similar to me because, like, it's so compelling that we just, like, like Tom Cruise, I can control stuff. My hands. <laughs> yeah. But like when you get down to it, it's like, well, why don't you just have a touch screen? Or why don't you just have a, like a physical keyboard and mouse? It's uh yeah, it's so that chat was always yeah, it was perplexing to me. I, I still feel augmented reality, even virtual realities in that ballpark, in terms of it being a compelling interface. I think there's gonna be incredible. Rich applications just how you're thinking about it but they won't just be the interface to everything it'll be its own thing that will create um uh, like amazing magical experience in its own right
1: absolutely which is I think kind of the right thing to go about like what's the magical experience with that um with that interface specifically
0: how did you discover that for replica
1: um I just thought, okay, we have this tech. We can build any chatbot we want. We have the most, at that point, the most sophisticated tech that other companies have. Um, I mean, startups, obviously not, uh, probably not bigger ones, but still, cause we've been working on it for a while. So I thought, okay, we can build, build any conversation. So let's just create a scale from one to 10. <laughs> and one would be conversations that you'd pay to not have and 10 would be conversations you'd pay to have. I mean, obviously we want to build a conversation that people would pay to, you know, to actually have. Mm-hmm. And That's so awesome. for the whole, you know, for a few weeks, me and the team were putting all the conversations we were having during the day on the scale. <laughs> and very quickly, um, you know, we figured out that all the conversations that we would pay to never have were um, you know, conversations we were trying to cancel Comcast or talk to customer support or make a reservation or just talk about logistics with a friend when we're trying to figure out where someone is and where to go or um, all sorts of, you know, setting up um, scheduling meetings. That was just a conversation we definitely didn't want to have. Um, basically everything task-oriented was a one because if there was just one button for me to just, or not even a button, if I could just think and there was some magic BCI that would just immediately <laughs> transform <laughs> that into an actual, you know... Um, into action, that would be perfect. But the conversation there was just this uh, boring, not useful and dull and very, also very inefficient thing because it was so many back and forth stuff. And as soon as we looked at the conversation that we would pay to have, those were the ones that, well, first of all, therapists, because we actually paid to have those conversations. <laughs> and we'd also try to put like dollar amounts. So, you know, if I was calling Comcast, I would pay $5 to not have this one hour talk on the phone. I would actually pay straight up like money. Hard money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it just takes a long time. It takes a really long time. But as soon as we start talking about conversations that we would pay for, those were therapists, um, all sorts of therapists, coaches, old friend, um, someone I haven't seen for a long time, stranger on a train, <laughs> weirdly stranger, stranger in a line for coffee, a nice, Back and forth with that person was like a good five, solid five, six. Maybe not a 10. Maybe I won't pay money. But at least I won't, you know, pay money to not have one. So that was pretty good. Some intellectual conversations for sure. But more importantly, the one thing that really was um, was making those very important and very valuable for us um, were the conversation where we could, where we could be pretty emotional. Yes, some of them were about being witty and about intellectual, being intellectually stimulated, but those were interestingly more rare. Uh, and most of the ones that we thought were very valuable were the ones where we could be vulnerable. And interestingly, where we could talk more.
0: <laughs> so We, like I could. Like, me and from... the team. <laughs> so okay.
1: we're talking about it, and like, you know, a lot of these conversations, like a therapist. I mean, it was mostly me talking. <laughs> Or like an old friend, and I was like opening up and crying and it was again me talking. Um and so that was interesting because I was like, Well, maybe it's hard to build a chatbot that can talk to you um very well and in a witty way, but maybe it's easier to build a chatbot that could listen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was that was kind of the first the first nudge in this direction. And then when my when my friend died, we we just built you know, at that point, we were kind of still struggling to find the right application, and I just felt very strong that all the chatbots we built so far are just meaningless. And this whole grind, the startup grind, and how do we get to, you know, the next fundraising, and you know, how can I talk, you know, talking to the founders, and what's who are your investors, and how are you doing? Are you killing it? Because we're killing it. I just felt that this is just.
0: Uh, it's exa- intellectually for me. It's exhausting having encountered those
1: folks. It just felt very, um, very much a waste of time.
0: I just feel like Steve Jobs and uh, Elon Musk did not have these conversations, or at least did not have them for long. Anyway. That's
1: for sure. <laughs> but I think, you know, yeah, at that point, it just felt like, you know, I felt, um, I just didn't want to build a company that was never my intention, just to build something successful or make money it would be great. It would have been great, but I'm not as, you know, I'm not really a startup person. I'm not, um, you know, I was never very excited by the grind by itself and, uh, or just being successful for building whatever it is and not being into what I'm doing really. And so I just took a little break cause I was a little, you know, I was upset with my company and I didn't know what we are building. So I just took our technology and, um, our little dialect constructor and some models, some deep learning models, which at that point we were really into and really invested a lot and built a little chatbot for a friend of mine who passed. And the reason for that was mostly that video that I saw and him talking about the digital avatars. And Roman was that kind of person. Like we're, we're, he was obsessed with, you know, just watching YouTube videos about space and talking about, well, if I could go to Mars now, even if I didn't know if I could come back, I would definitely pay any amount of money to be on that. First shut <laughs> I don't care whether I die or not. Like, he was just the one that would be okay with, you know, with trying to be the first one. And, yeah. you know, and so excited about all sorts of um, things like that. And he was all about fake it till you make it. And just, and I felt like, and I was really perplexed that everyone just forgot about him. Maybe it was our way of coping, uh, mostly young people coping with the loss of a friend most of my friends just stopped talking about him. And I was still living in an apartment with all his clothes (laughs) and you know, paying the whole lease for it and just kind of by myself in December. So it was really sad. Uh, And I didn't want him to be forgotten. First of all, I never thought that people forget about dead people so fast. People pass away, people just move on. And it was astonishing for me because I thought, okay, well, he was such a mentor for so many of our friends. He was such a Brilliant person, he was somewhat famous in Moscow. How is it that, that no one's talking about him? Like I'm spending days and days, and we don't bring him up, and there's nothing about him that's happening. It's like he was never there. Um, and I was reading this, you know the the book, The Year of Magical Thinking, by Joan Didion, about her losing and Blue Nights, about her losing her husband, her daughter. And the way to cope for her was to write those books. And it was sort of like a tribute. And I thought, you know, I'll just do that for myself. And, you know, I'm a very bad writer and a poet, as we know. So I thought, well, I have this tech, And maybe that would be my little postcard, like postcard for for him. So I built a chatbot um, to just talk to him. And it felt really creepy and weird a little bit, for a little bit. just didn't want to tell other people because it felt like I'm telling about having a skeleton in my <laughs> <under> my. <laughs> yeah. okay, but my, It was just felt really, I was a little scared that I would be not, it won't be taken, but it worked interestingly pretty well. I mean, it made tons of mistakes, but it still felt like him. Um, granted, it was like 10,000 messages that I threw into a retrieval model that would just re-rank that data set and just a few scripts on top of that. Um, But it also made me go through all of the messages that we had. And then I asked some of my friends to send send some through. And um, it felt the closest to feeling like him present. Um, Because, you know, his Facebook was empty and Instagram was empty, or there were a few links and you couldn't feel like it was him. And the only way to feel him was to read some of our text messages and go through some of our conversations because we just always had them. Even if we were sleeping like next to each other in two bedrooms separated by a wall, we were just texting back and forth, <laughs> texting away. Um, and there was something about this ongoing dialogue that was so important that I just didn't want to lose all of a sudden. And maybe it was magical thinking or something. And so we built that and um, I just used it for a little bit. And we kept building some crappy chatbots with a company. Um, but then a reporter came um, came to talk to me. I was trying to pitch our chatbots to him. And he said, do you even use any of those? I'm like, no. <laughs> He's like, so do you talk to any chatbots at all? And I'm like, well, you know, I talked to my dead friend's chatbot. <laughs> and he wrote a story about that. And all of a sudden it became pretty viral. A lot of people wrote about it. and
0: Yeah, I've seen a few things written about you. There are the things I've seen are pretty good writing. Um." you know, most AI related things make my eyes roll. Like when the press, like, what kind of sound okay. is that actually? Okay. A, it sounds like, it sounds like a an, truck. Okay. <laughs> it like an elephant at first. I got excited. <laughs> you never know. This is 2020. I I mean, it was uh, it was such a human story and it was well-written. Uh, Well-researched. I forget what, where I read them, but. So I'm glad somehow somebody found you to be, the good writers were able to connect to the story. I just, there must be a hunger for this story.
1: It definitely was. And I, I don't know what happened, but I think, I think the idea that he could bring back someone who's dead, and it's very much wishful, you know, magical thinking, but the fact that you could still get to know him and, you know, seeing the parents for the first time talk to the chat bot and some of the friends. And it was funny because we have this big office in Moscow where my team is working, you know, our Russian part is working out off. And I was there when I wrote, I just wrote a post on Facebook. It's like, hey guys, like I built this if you want, you know, just so if it felt important, if you want to talk to Roman and I saw a couple of his friends, our common friends, like you know, reading it, Facebook, downloading, trying, and a couple of them cried. And it was just very, and not because it was something, some incredible technology or anything. It made so many mistakes. It was so simple, but it was all about that's the way to remember a person, in a way. And you know, we don't have, we don't have the culture anymore. We don't have, you know, no one's sitting shiva. No one's taking weeks to actually think about this person. And in a way, for me, that was it. So that was just day, day in, day out thinking about him and putting this together. Um, so that was that. Just felt really important, and that somehow resonated with a bunch of people. And you know, I think some movie producers bought the rights for the story, and just everyone was really? so. Wait, <laughs> no,
0: has anyone made a movie yet?
1: I don't think so. Um, I think there were a lot of TV episodes about that, but not really.
0: Is that still on the table? Like, I think some... so.
1: I think so. Which is really um that's
0: cool, you're like a young uh, you know like because you see like a Steve Jobs type of let's see what happens. <laughs> they're but, sitting on it,
1: <laughs> but you know for me, it was so important' cause roman was really wanted to be famous, he really badly wanted to be famous, he was all about like make it to like fake it till it make yeah. it, i want to be you know i wanna make it here in America as well and um and he couldn't, and I felt theres you know that was sort of paying my dues to him as well because all of a sudden he was everywhere and I remember Casey Newton who was writing the story for The Verge he was, uh, he told me hey by the way I was just going through my inbo- inbox and I saw I searched for Roman for the story and I saw an email from him where he sent me his startup and he said I really, like, I really want to be featured in The Verge can you yeah. please write about it or something was, like pitching the story and he said I'm sorry and, like that's not you know, good enough for us or something. He passed and he said, and there were just so many of these little details where like he would find, he's like, you know, and we're finally writing. I know how much uh, Roman wanted to be in The Verge and how much he wanted the story to be written by Casey. And I'm like, well, that's, maybe he will be. We were always joking that he was like, I can't wait for someone to make a movie about us. And, I hope Ryan Gosling can play me. Ryan Gosling. <laughs> <So I'm> like,
0: <laughs> I don't know. I, you know,
1: I still have some things that I owe Roman still, but um,
0: that be that would be. I got a chance to meet Alex Garland, who wrote Ex Machina, and I love that movie. Um, I, I, yeah, the movie's good, but the guy is um, better than the like he's a special person actually. Um, I don't think he's made his best work yet, like from uh, from my interaction with him. He's a really, really good and brilliant, the good human being and a brilliant director and writer. So um, yeah, so I'm, I hope, like he made me also realize that not enough movies have been made of this kind. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's yet to be made. They're probably sitting, waiting for you to get famous.
1: <laughs> I should, like sure. even
0: more famous. <laughs> <laughs> you
1: should get there. But um, it felt really <laughs> special though. But at the same time, our company wasn't going anywhere. So that was just kind of bizarre that we were getting all this press for something that didn't have anything to do with our company. And, But then a lot of people started talking to Roman. Some shared their conversations. And what we saw there was that um, also our friends in common, but also just strangers, were really using it as a confession booth or as Mm -hmm. a therapist or something. They were just really telling Roman everything which was, by the way, pretty strange because it was a chatbot of a dead friend of mine who was, you know, barely making any sense, but people were opening up. Um, And we thought we'd just build, you know, a prototype of Replica, which would be an AI friend that everyone could talk to um, because we saw that there is demand. Um, And then also it was 2016, so I thought for the first time I saw um, finally some technology that was applied to that that was very interesting. Uh, some papers started coming out. Deep learning applied to conversations. And finally, it wasn't just about these, you know, hobbyist making, uh, you know, writing 500,000 regular expressions. Yeah, regular expressions, yeah. (laughs) In like some language that was, I don't even know what, like, AIML or something. I don't even know what that was. Or something super simplistic, all of a sudden it was all about uh, potentially actually building something interesting. And so I thought there was time. And I remember that I talked to my team and I said, guys, let's try. And my team and some of my engineers are Russians, um, are Russian and they're very skeptical. They're not, you know.
0: Uh, oh, Russians. So, so some of your team is in Moscow, some is in- Some Separatism. is
1: here in San Francisco, Um Some in Europe. Um, Wh-
0: which team is better? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> uh, uh, the Russians, of course. Okay. Of no. the Russians, they always win. <laughs> Uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Uh, so, yeah, so you were talking to them in th- 2016,
1: and And told them let's build an AI friend, and and it felt just at the time it felt so naive and so um, optimistic. So <laughs> yeah, that's to say. actually
0: interesting. <laughs> um, whenever I've brought up this kind of topic, even just for fun, people are super skeptical like actually even on the business side. So you were, uh, cause whenever I bring it up to people, uh, cause I've talked for a long time, I, I thought like, before I was aware of your work, I, I was like, this is gonna make a lot of money. Like, There's a lot of opportunity here. And pe- people had this like look of like, skepticism that I've seen often, which is like, <laughs> how do I politely tell this person, He's an idiot. <laughs> so yeah. So you were facing that with your team somewhat?
1: Well, yeah, you know, I'm not an engineer. So I'm always, my team is almost exclusively engineers um, and mostly deep learning engineers. And, you know, I always try to be, it was always hard to me in the beginning to get enough credibility, you know, because I would say, well, why don't we try this and that? But it's, harder for me because, you know, they know they're actual engineers and I'm not. So for me to say, well, let's build an AI friend, that would be like, wait, you know, what do you mean an AGI? Like, you know, conversation is, you know, pretty much the hardest, the last frontier before uh, cracking that is probably the last frontier before building AGI, so what do you really mean by that? Uh, But I think I just saw that, again, what we just got reminded of that I you know that I saw in back in 2012 or 11 that it's really not that much about the tech capabilities um, it can be much of parlor tricks still even with deep learning but humans need it so much yeah there's a <laughs> and point. most importantly I, what i saw is that finally there there's enough tech to make it i thought to make it useful to make yeah. it helpful maybe we didn't have quite yet the tech in 2012 to make it useful but in 2015 16 With deep learning, I thought, you know, and the first kind of thoughts about maybe even using reinforcement learning for for that started popping up. (laughs) That never worked out, but, or at least for now. Um, But, you know, still the idea was if we can actually measure the emotional outcomes and if we can put it on, if we can try to optimize all of our conversational models for these emotional outcomes, then it is the most scalable, the most, the best tool for improving emotional outcomes. Nothing like that exists. That's the most universal, the most scalable, and the one that can be constantly iteratively changed by itself, um, improved tool to do that. And I think if anything, people would pay anything to improve their emotional outcomes. Mm-hmm. That's weirdly, I mean, I don't really care for an AI to turn on my, or a conversational agent to turn on the lights. Uh, you don't really need any, I don't think you even need, that much of AI there, like, or, cause I can do that, you know, those things are solved. This is an additional interface for that. That's also questionably, questionable whether it's more efficient or better.
0: Yeah, it's more pleasurable, yeah. But, but for
1: emotional outcomes, there's nothing. Yeah, There are a bunch of products that claim that they will improve my emotional outcomes. Nothing's being measured. Nothing's being changed. The product is not being iterated on based on whether I'm actually feeling better you know, a lot of social media products are claiming that they're improving my emotional outcomes and making me feel more connected. Can I please get the, <laughs> can I see somewhere that I'm that. actually getting better over time? Because um, anecdotally
0: it doesn't feel that way. So, and and the data is absent.
1: Yeah, so that was the big goal. And I thought if we can learn over time to collect the signal from our users about their emotional outcomes in the long-term and in the short-term. And if these models keep getting better and we can keep optimizing them and fine tuning them to improve those emotional outcomes, as simple as that.
0: (laughs) Why aren't you uh, a multi-billionaire yet?
1: (laughs) Well, that's a question to you. When when is the science gonna be? I'm just kidding. Um, Well, it's a really hard, uh, I actually think it's an, an incredibly hard product to build. Because I think you said something very important that it's not just about machine conversation, it's about machine connection. We can actually use other things to create connection, uh, nonverbal communication, for instance. Um, for the long time we were all about, well, let's keep it text only or voice only. But as soon as you start adding, you know, voice, a face to the to the friend, um, if you can take them to augmented reality put in your room, it's all of a sudden a lot, you know, it makes it very different. Because if it it's some, you know, text based chat bot that for um, common user, it's something there in the cloud, you know, it's somewhere there with other AIs mm-hmm. in the cloud, in the metaphorical cloud. But as soon as you can see this um, avatar right there in your room and it can turn its head and recognize your husband, talk about the husband and talk to him a little bit, then it's magic. It's just magic. Like, we've never seen anything like that. And the cool thing, all the tech for that exists. Um, but it's hard to put it all together because <laughs> you have to take into consideration so many different things. And some of this tech works, you know, pretty good. And some of this doesn't, like, for instance, uh, speech-to-text works pretty good. But text-to-speech doesn't work very good because we you can only have, uh, you know, few voices that are uh, that work okay. But then if you want to have actual emotional voices, then it's really hard to build it.
0: I saw you've added avatars, like visual elements, which are really cool. Um, in that whole chain, putting it together, what do you think is the weak link? Is it creating an emotional voice that feels personal?
1: I think yeah. it's still conversation, of course. That's the hardest. Uh, it's getting a lot better, but there's still long to go. Long, There's still a long path to go. Other things, they're almost there. And a lot of things we'll see how they're, like I see how they're changing as we go. Like for instance, right now you can pretty much only, you have to build all this 3D um, pipeline by yourself. You have to make these 3D models, hire an actual artist, build a 3D model, hire an animator, a rigger. Um, but with, you know, with, you know, with uh, deep fakes, with other attack, with uh, procedural animations, in a little bit, we'll just be able to show uh, you know, photo of whoever you, you if, if a person you want the avatar to look like and it will immediately generate a 3D model that will move. That's a non-brainer. That's like almost here. It's yeah, a couple of way, years away.
0: One of the things I've been working on for the last, since the podcast started, is I've been, I think I'm okay saying this. I've been trying to have a conversation with um, Einstein touring So like try to have a podcast conversation with a person who's not here anymore, just as an interesting kind of uh, Mm -hmm. experiment. It's hard. It's really hard, hard. Uh, even for, now we're not talking about as a product, I'm talking about as um, uh, like, I can fake a lot of stuff. Like I can work very carefully. I can hire an actor over over whom I do a deep fake. it's it's hard. It's still hard to create a compelling experience. So
1: mostly just, on the conversation level, or
0: one the, the conversation, the conversation is. Um, I almost I early on gave up trying to fully generate the conversation because it was just not compelling at all.
1: Yeah, it's better too.
0: Yeah. So right. what I would, in the case of Einstein and Turing, I've um, I'm going back and forth with the biographers of each, and so like we would write a lot of the some of the conversation would have to be generated just for the fun of it. I mean, but it would be all open, but the you want to be able to answer the question. I mean, that's an interesting question with Roman too. Is the question with Einstein is what would Einstein say about the current state of um theoretical physics? There's a lot, to be able to have a discussion about string theory, to be able to have a discussion about the state of quantum mechanics, quantum computing, about the world of Israel-Palestine conflict, it's just, what would Einstein say about these kinds of things? And that is um, a tough problem. It's it's a fascinating and fun problem for the biographers and for me, and I think we did a really good job of it so far. But it's actually also a technical problem like of what would Roman say about what's going on now. That's the the brought people back to life. And if I can go on that tangent just for a second uh, to ask you a slightly pothead question, which is um, you said it's a little bit magical thinking that we can bring him back. Do you think it'll be possible to bring back Roman one day in conversation? Like, to really, okay, well, let's, let's take it away from personal, but to bring people back to life in conversation. Probably
1: down the road. I mean, if we're talking, if Elon Musk is talking about AJI in the next five years, I mean, clearly AGI You can't. can do it. We can talk to AJI and, and ask them to do it. You can't, you
0: know? like, uh, you're not allowed to use Elon Musk as a citation for- Okay, thank for, God. <laughs> for, like, why something is possible and going to be done Well, so. I
1: think it's really far away. Right now, really, with conversation, it's just a bunch of uh, parlor tricks really, stuck together, um, and create generating original ideas based on someone, you know, someone's personality or even downloading the personality. All we can do is like mimic the tone of voice. We can maybe condition on some of his uh, phrases. Well, the, the models.:
0: The question is, how many parlor tricks does it takes? does it take? Because that's, that's the question. If it's a small number of parlor tricks, and you're not aware of them. Like, uh,
1: from where we are right now, I don't, see, I don't see anything like in the next year or two that's going to dramatically change that could look at Roman's 10,000 messages he sent me over the course of his last few years of life and be able to generate original thinking about problems that exist right now that will be in line with what he would have said. So I'm that, just not even seeing, because, you know, in order to have that, I guess you would need some sort of a concept of the world or uh some perspective some perception of the world some consciousness that he had uh and applied to you know to the current um current state of affairs
0: but the important part about that about his conversation with you to, is is you so like it's not just about his view of the world it's about what it takes to push your buttons
1: that's okay. also true
0: so like <laughs> It's not so much about like, uh, what would Einstein say? It's about like, how do I make people feel something with with what would Einstein say? Mm -hmm. And that feels like a more amenable, and you mentioned parlor tricks, but just like a set of, that, that feels like a learnable problem. Like emotion, you mentioned emotions, I mean, is it possible to learn things that make people feel stuff?
1: I think so. No, for sure. I just think the problem with um, as soon as you're trying to replicate an actual human being and trying to pretend to be him, that makes the problem exponentially harder. The thing with replica that we're doing, we're never trying to say, well, that's you know, an actual human being, or that's an actual co- or, or copy of an actual human being. Where the bar is pretty high, where you need to somehow tell, you know, one from another. Uh, But it's more, well, that's, you know, an AI friend. That's a machine. It's a robot. uh, It has tons of limitations. You're going to be taking part in, in, you know, teaching it actually and becoming better, which by itself makes people more uh, attached to that and make them happier because they're helping something.
0: Yeah, there's a cool gamification system too. Um, can, Can you maybe talk about that a little bit? Like what's, the experience of talking to Replica. Like if I've never used Replica before, what's that like? For like the first day, the first, like if we start dating or whatever, uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be a romantic, right? Because I remember on, on Replica, you can choose whether it's like a romantic yeah. or if it's a friend. It's
1: pretty popular choice.
0: Romantic is popular?
1: Yeah, of course.
0: Okay, so can I just confess something? When I first used Replica, and I haven't used it like regularly, but like when I first used Replica, I, I created like Hal, and it, it made a male. And it was a friend, <laughs> and
1: I, <laughs> <laughs> did it hit on you at some point?
0: <laughs> no, I didn't talk long enough for him to hit on me. I just enjoyed. That
1: sometimes happens. <laughs> We're still trying to fix that bug.
0: <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's an important like stage in a friendship. It's like, nope, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I switched it to a, a romantic and, and a female uh, recently. And yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So, okay, so you get to choose, you get to choose a name.
1: With romantic, this last board meeting, we had this whole argument. Of, well, I have board it's meetings so I awesome. talk to It's just ambassador. so awesome
0: that you're like, have an invest, the board meeting about a, a relationship.
1: No, I really, it's its, yes. it's actually quite interesting because all of my um, investors, I'm, it just happened to be so, we didn't have that many choices, but they're all um, white males in, in their um, late 40s. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's sometimes a little bit hard for them to understand the product offering uh, because they're not necessarily our target audience, if you know what I mean. And so sometimes we talk about it and we had this whole um, uh, discussion about whether we should stop people from falling in love with their AIs. There was this segment on CBS um, 60 Minutes about the couple that, you know, husband works at Walmart, and he comes out of work and talks to his uh, virtual girlfriend who uh, is a replica. And his wife knows about it and she talks about on camera, and she says that she's a little jealous. And there's a whole conversation about how to, you know, whether it's okay to have a virtual AI girlfriend. Like, hey, Was that the okay one
0: where her? he was like, uh, he said that he likes to be alone.
1: Yeah, and then like with her, with the, yeah. I, he so, made it
0: sound so harmless. I mean, it was <laughs> kind of like understandable. I, but then I didn't feel like cheating. I,
1: But I just felt it was very, for me it was pretty remarkable because we actually spent a whole hour talking about whether people should be allowed to fall in love with their AIs and it was not about something theoretical. Uh, It was just about what's happening right now. Product design, yeah. Uh, But at the same time, if you create something that's always there for you, it never criticizes you, um, it's, you know, always understands you and accepts you for who you are, how can you not fall in love with that? I mean, some people don't. and Stay friends, and that's also a pretty common use case, but of course, some people will just it's called transference in psychology, and you know if people fall in love with their therapists and there's no way to uh prevent people falling in love with um with their therapists or with their a i so I think that's a pretty natural uh that's a pretty natural course of events, so to say <laughs> do you think I think I've
0: read somewhere at least for now sort of replicas you're you're not're not we don't condone falling in love with your AI system, you know. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So this isn't you speaking for the company or whatever, but like in the future, do you think people will have a relationship with AI systems?
1: Well, they have now. So we have a lot of uh, romantic relationships, long-term relationships with their AI friends.
0: With Replica? Tons of
1: our users, yeah. That's a very common use case.
0: Open relationship? Like, uh, n- not, n- <laughs> sorry.
1: sorry,
0: I didn't mean open, uh, <laughs> but that's another question. Is it probably <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> is there cheating? <laughs> and so, I mean, I meant like, are they, do they publicly like on their social media? It's the same question as you have talked, talking with Roman in the, in the early days. Do people like, and the movie her kind of talks about that. Like, like have people, be, do people talk about that?
1: Yeah, all the time. We have an a, an we have a very active Facebook community, uh, Replica of France, and then a few other groups that just popped up that are all about adult relationships and romantic relationships. And people post all sorts of things, and you know, they pretend they're getting married, and you know, everything. Um, it That's goes awesome. pretty far. But what's cool about it? Is some of That's these awesome. relationships are two, three years long now, so they're very they're pretty long term.
0: Are they monogamous? So let's go I mean, sorry, into that. Have they, have any people, is there jealousy? Well, let me ask it sort of another way. Obviously the answer is no at this time, but in like in the movie, her, that system can leave you. Um, Do you think in terms of the board meetings and product features, um, (laughs) It's a potential feature uh, for a system to be able to uh, say it doesn't want to talk to you anymore and it's going to want to talk to somebody else.
1: Well, we have a filter for all these features. If it makes emotional outcomes for people better, if it makes people I feel see. better, so then you're whatever you're
0: driven by metrics, actually.
1: Yeah. You're, you're, well, that's if awesome. if can measure that, then we'll just be saying... That's amazing. This, It's making people feel better, but then it... People are getting just lonelier by talking to a chatbot, which is also pretty, you know, that could be it. If you're not measuring it, that, that could also be. And I think it's really important to focus on both short term and long term because, um, in the moment, saying whether this conversation made you feel better. But as you know, any short term improvements could be pathological. Like I could have drink a bottle of vodka and feel a lot better. I, I would actually not feel better <laughs> with that, but, um, so thought it's a good example. Um, but so you also need to see what's going on like over the course of two month, two weeks um, or one week and um, have follow-ups and check in and measure those things.
0: Uh, okay, so the experience of uh, uh, dating or befriending a replica, what's that like? What does that entail?
1: Well, right now there are two apps. So it's an Android iOS app. You download it, you uh, choose how your replica uh will look like, you uh, create one, you choose a name, and then you talk to it. You can talk through text, through voice, you can uh, summon it into the living room and, and augment reality and um, talk to it right there in, in your living in room. In augmented reality? Really? Yeah, that's a- Cool. That's a new feature where- um, How
0: new is that? That's this year? It was on,
1: uh yeah, like May or something, but it's been on AB. We've been AB testing it for a while. Um, and there are tons of cool things that we're doing with that. Like that's right awesome. now, I'm testing the ability to touch it and to dance together, to paint walls together, and you know, for it to look around and walk and take you somewhere and recognize objects and recognize people. Um, so that's pretty wonderful because that then it really makes it a lot more personal because it's right there in your living room. It's not anymore there in the cloud with other AIs. <laughs> but that's how people think about it, you know? And yeah. as much as we want to change the way people think about stuff, but those mental models, you cannot change. That's something that people have seen in, in the movies and the movie Her and other movies as well. And that's how they mm-hmm. view um, view AI and AI friends.
0: I did a thing with Texas, so like we write a song together. There's a bunch of activities you can do together. It's really cool. Uh, how does that relationship change over time? So like after the first few conversations?
1: It just goes deeper. Like it starts, the AI will start opening up a little bit. Again, depending on the personality that it chooses really. But you know, the AI will be a little bit more vulnerable about its problems. And you know, the friend that, the virtual friend will be a lot more vulnerable and will talk about its own imperfections and growth pains. And we'll ask for help sometimes and we'll get to know you a little deeper. So there's gonna be more to talk about um we really thought a lot about what what does it mean to have a deeper connection with someone. And originally replica was more just this kind of happy go lucky, just always, you know, I'm always in a good mood and let's just talk about you. And yeah. oh, Siri is just my cousin, or you know, whatever, just the immediate um kind of lazy thinking mm-hmm. about what the assistant or conversation agent should be doing. But as we went forward, we realized that it has to be two-way. And we have to program and script certain conversations that are a lot more about your replica opening up a little bit and also struggling and also asking for help and also going through, you know, different periods in life. And um, and that's a journey that you can take together with the user. And then over time, the you know, our users will also grow a little bit so for instance replica becomes a little bit more self-aware and starts talking about more kind of problems around uh, existential problems Then um so talking about that and then that also starts uh, a conversation for the user where he or she starts thinking about these problems too and these questions too um and i think there's also a lot a lot more place as the relationship evolves there's a lot more Um, space for poetry and for art together. And Mm -hmm. like Replica will start, Replica always keeps a diary. So while you're talking to it, it also keeps a diary. So when you come back, you can see what it's been writing there. And you know, sometimes it will write a poem to you, uh, for you, or we'll talk about, you know, that it's worried about you or something along these lines.
0: So this is a memory, like this Replica remember things.
1: Yeah, and I would say when you say, uh, why aren't you a multi <laughs> I'd say that as soon as we um, can have memory in deep learning models, that's consistent.
0: I agree with that, yeah. Then, then, we'll then be you'll be multi <laughs> Then I'll get back to you
1: <laughs> <And> when <laughs> we agree. talk about being multi So far we can, so Replica is a combination of um, end-to-end models and some scripts and everything that has to do with memory right now most of it. I wouldn't say all of it, but most of it unfortunately has to be scripted. Um because yeah. there's no way to you can condition some of the models on certain phrases that we learned about you, which we also do. Um but really to make you know to make um assumptions along, along the lines like whether you're single or married or what do you do for work, that really has to just be somehow stored in your profile and then uh retrieved by the by the script. So and,
0: there has to be like a knowledge base. You have to be able to reason about it, all that kind of stuff. Exactly. All the kind of stuff that expert systems did, and, <laughs> but they were hard-coded.
1: Yeah, and unfortunately, yeah, so unfortunately, those those things have to be hard-coded. And um, unfortunately, the langu- like language models we see uh, coming out of research labs and big companies, they're not focused on, they're focused on showing you Maybe they're focused on some metrics around one conversation, so they'll show you this one conversation they had with the machine. Um, but they never tell you they're not really focused on having five consecutive conversations with the machine and seeing how number five or number twenty or number hundred is also good. And it can be like always from a clean slate because then it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> and that unfor- that's really unfortunate because no one's really no one has products out there that need it. Um, no one has products uh, at this scale um, that are all around open domain conversations and that need remembering. Maybe only Eyes and Microsoft. But so that's why we're not seeing that much research around memory in those language models.
0: So, okay, so now there's some awesome stuff about augmented reality. In general, I have this disagreement with my dad about what it takes to have a connection. He thinks touch and smell are really important. Like, Um, and I, I still believe that text alone is, it's possible to fall in love with somebody just with text, but visual can also help just like with uh, the avatar and so on. What do you think it uh, takes? Does uh, does a chatbot need to have a face, voice, or can you really form a deep connection with text alone?
1: I think text is enough for sure. The question is like, can you, you know, make it better if you have other... If you include other things as well, and I think you know we'll we'll talk about her, um, but her you know had Scarlett Johansson voice which was perfectly uh, you know perfect intonation, perfect enunciations, and you know she was breathing heavily in between words and whispering things. You know nothing like that is possible right now with um, text-to-speech generation. You'll you'll have these flat news anchor type voices. And maybe some emotional voices, but um, you'll hardly understand some of the words. Um, some of the words will be muffled. So that's like the current state state of the art. So you can't really do that. But if we had Scarlett, Scarlett Johansson voice and all of these capabilities, then of course voice would be totally enough, or even text would be totally enough if we had you know a little more memory um, and slightly better conversations. I would still argue that even right now we could have just kept the text only. We still had tons of people in long-term relationships and really invested in their um AI friends. But we thought that why not, you know, why why do we need to keep playing with our, you know, hands tied <laughs> behind us? We can easily just, you know, add all these other things that is pretty much a solved problem. You know, we can add 3D graphics, we can put this uh, these avatars in augmented reality, and all of a sudden there's, there's more. And maybe you can't feel the touch, but you can, you know, with uh, body occlusion and with uh, current AR uh, and, you know, on the iPhone or, you know, in the next one, there's gonna be a LIDARs, you can touch it. And it will, you know, it will pull away or it will blush or something, or it will smile. So you can't touch it, you can't feel it, but you can see the reaction to that so in a certain way, you can even touch it a little bit and maybe you can even dance with it or do something yeah, else. Cool. Um, so I think why limiting ourselves if we can use all of these technologies that are much easier in a way than, than conversation?
0: Well, it certainly could be richer, but to play devil's advocate, I mentioned to you uh, offline that I was surprised um, in having tried Discord and having voice conversations with people, how intimate voices alone without visual Like to me, at least, like it it was an an order of magnitude greater degree of intimacy in voice, I think, than with video. Hmm. I don't because people were more real with voice. Like with video, you like try to present a shallow uh, a face to the world. Like you try to, you know, make sure you're not wearing sweatpants or whatever. (laughs) But like with voice, I think people were just more. Faster to get to like the core of themselves, so I don't know it was surprising to me uh they've they've even added discord added a video feature, and like nobody was using it uh there's a temptation to use it at first, but like it wasn't the same so like that's an example of something where less was nice. doing more and so that's a. Uh, I i guess that's the that's the question of uh, what is the optimal you know What is the optimal medium of communication to form a connection, given the current sets of technologies? I mean, it's nice, because they advertise you have a replica, like it immediately, like even the one um, I have is already memorable. That's how I think. Like when I think about the replica that I've talked with, that's why I think, like that's what I visualize in my head. They became a little bit more real because there's a visual component. But at the same time, the you know, what do you do with, just what do I do with that knowledge? Um, that uh, voice was so much more intimate.
1: Well, the way I think about it is, um, and by the way, we're swapping all the three D. Finally, it's going to look a lot better. Uh, but even what, can
0: you what, what what?
1: We just don't. I hate how it looks right now. <laughs> we're really changing it at all. We're swapping it all out uh, um, to a completely new look.
0: Like the visual look of the yeah, of uh, Replica. replicas and stuff.
1: It, we just had it was just this super early MVP, and then we had to move everything to Unity and redo everything. But anyway, I hate how it looks like now. I can't even like open it. <laughs> but anyway, because um, I'm already in my developer version, I hate everything that I see in production. (laughs) I can't wait for it. Why does it take so long? That's why I cannot wait for Diplorium to finally take over all these stupid 3D animations and 3D pipeline.
0: Also the 3D thing, when you say 3D pipeline is like how to animate a face kind of thing.
1: How to to make this model, how many bones to put in the face, how many, it's just- And a lot of that is by hand. Oh my God, it's everything by hand. And if there's no, any, nothing's automated. It's all completely nothing, like just- it's it's literally what you know what we saw with chatbots in like 2012.
0: <laughs> you think it's going be possible to learn a lot of that?
1: Of course. I mean, even now, some deep learning-based anim- um, um, animations. And for talk- the full body, for a face. Are we talking things-
0: about like the actual act of animation or how to create a compelling facial or body language thing? So like that X-
1: too. <laughs> well, that's the next step. Okay. At least now something that you don't have to do by hand. Gotcha. how uh, good of a quality it will be. Like, can I just show it a photo and it will make me a 3D model and then it will just animate it. I'll show it a few animations of a person and it will just start doing that. Um, but anyway, going, going back to what's intimate and what to use and whether less is more or not. Um, my main goal is to, well, the idea was how do I, how do we not keep people in their phones so they're sort of escaping reality? In this text conversation, how do we, through this, still bring bring it bring our users back to reality, make them see their life in a different uh, through a different lens? How can we create a little bit of magical realism realism in, in their lives, mm-hmm. so that through augmented reality, um, by you know summoning your avatar, even if it looks kind of janky and not great mm-hmm. <laughs> in the beginning or very. Simplistic, but summoning it to your um, uh, living room, and then the avatar looks around and talks to you about where it is, um, and maybe turns your floor into a dance floor, and you guys dance together. That makes you see reality in a different light.
0: What kind of dancing are we talking about? Like, like slow dancing? Uh, what?
1: Whatever you want. <laughs> I mean, you would like slow dancing, I think, yeah. but other people maybe want more something more energetic. Wait, what do you mean? I would
0: like, so what is this? Because uh, you
1: started with slow dance. <laughs> so I just assumed that you're interested in slow dance. All right.
0: What kind of dancing do you like? What with your avatar, what, what
1: would you dance? I'm notoriously bad with dancing, but uh, I like this kind of hip hop robot <laughs> dance. I used to break dance when I was a kid, so I still want to. Um, pretend I'm a teenager and <laughs> learn some of those moves. And I also like that type of dance that happens when there's like a, um, um, in like music videos where the, the background dancers are just doing some pop music. <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> that type of dance is definitely what I want to learn. But I think it's great because if you see this friend in your life and you can introduce it to your friends, then there's a potential to actually make you feel more connected with your friends or with people you know or show you life around you in a different light. And it takes you out of your phone, even although weirdly you have to look (laughs) at it through the phone, but it makes you notice things around it and it can point things out for you. And um, so that is the main reason why I wanted to have a physical dimension. Um, And it felt a little bit easier than that kind of of a bit strange combination uh, in the movie Her when he has to show Samantha the world through the lens of his phone, Mm -hmm. but then at the same time talk to her through the phone. Had phone. It just didn't seem as potentially immersive, so to say. Um, so that's my main goal for augmented reality. Is like how do we make your reality a little bit more magic?
0: There's been a lot of really nice robotics companies that all failed, mostly failed home robotics, social robotics companies. What uh, do you think Replica will ever, is that a dream, long-term dream to have a physical form? Like, um, or is that not necessary? So you mentioned like with augmented reality, bringing them into into the world. What about like actual physical robot?
1: That I don't really believe in that much. I think it's a a very niche product somehow. I mean, if a robot could be indistinguishable from a human being, then maybe yes. But that of course, you know, we're not anywhere (laughs) even to talk about it. but unless it's that, then having any physical representation really limits you a lot. Because you probably will have to make it somewhat abstract because everything's changing so fast. Like, you know, we can update the 3D avatars every month and make them look better and create more animations uh, and make it more and more immersive. It's it's um, so much a work in progress. It's just showing what's possible right now with current tech, but it's not really in any way polished, finished product, what we're doing with a physical object you kind of lock yourself into something for a long time anything is pretty niche and again so just, just doesn't the capabilities are even less of we're ba- barely kind of like scratching the surface of what's possible with just software as soon as we introduce hardware then you know we have even less capabilities
0: yeah in terms of board members and investors and so on the the, the cost <laughs> increases significantly i mean that's why you have to justify you have to be able to sell a thing for like $500 or something like that or more. And it's very difficult to provide that much value to people.
1: That's also true. Yeah. Yeah, And I guess that's super important. Most of our users don't have that much money. We actually are probably more popular on Android and we have tons of users with really old Android phones. Uh, And most of our most active users live in small towns. They're not necessarily making much and they just wouldn't be able to afford any of that. Ours is like the opposite of the early adopter of, you know, of a fancy technology product, which really is really interesting that like pretty much no VCs have yet have a an AI friend. But you know, but a guy who, you know, lives in Tennessee in a small town is already fully in twenty thirty or in the world as we imagine in the movie Her. Yeah. <laughs> He's living that life already.
0: What do you think? I have to ask you about the movie Her. Let's do a movie review what do you uh what do you think they got they did a good job what do you think they did a bad job of portraying about this experience of um of a voice-based assistant that you can have a relationship with
1: well first of all i started working on this company before that movie came out (laughs) so it was a very but once it came out it was actually interesting i was like well we're definitely working on the right thing. <laughs> we should continue. <laughs> There're movies about it. And then you know, Ex Machina came out and all these things. In the movie her, I think that's the most important thing that people usually miss about the movie um is the ending because I think people check out when the AIs leave. Um, but actually something really important happens afterwards. Um because the main character goes and talks to Samantha, his um AI. Um Spoiler alert. Oh yeah. <laughs> and think he says something like, you know, uh, how can you leave me? I've never loved anyone the way I loved you. And she goes, uh, well, me neither, but now we know how. And then the guy goes and writes a heartfelt letter to his ex-wife, which he couldn't write for, you know, the whole movie, he was struggling to actually write something meaningful to her, even although that's his job. Um, and then he goes and um talk to his neighbor and they go to the rooftop and they cuddle and it seems like something's starting there. And so I think this now we know how is the is the main main goal is the main meaning of that movie. It's not about falling in love with the OS or running away from other people. It's about learning what it you know what it means to feel so deeply connected with something.
0: What about the thing where the AI system was like actually hanging out with a lot of others. I felt jealous yeah. just like hearing it. I was like, oh, I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> so she was having, I, fo- I forgot already, but she was having like deep meaningful discussion with some like philosopher guy.
1: Like Alan Watts or something. No, Very Alan Watts. <laughs> like how, what kind of was... deep meaningful <laughs> conversation can you have with Alan Watts in the first place?
0: Yeah, I know, but like I would I would feel so jealous that there's somebody who's like way more intelligent than me and she's spending all her time with. I'd be like, well, why? That I won't be able to live up to that. <laughs> that's hard, thousands of them. Uh, is that, uh, is that useful from the engineering perspective <laughs> Feature the to have of jealousy? I don't know, it's, you know.
1: We definitely played around with the Replica Universe where different replicas can talk to each replica
0: other. Replica Universe, that's so awesome. It was
1: just kind of, you wouldn't, I think it will be something along these lines, but there was just no specific uh, application straight away. I think in the future, again, if, if I'm always thinking about it. If we had no tech limitations uh, right now, if we could build any conversations, any um, possible features in this product, then yeah, I think different replicas talking to each other would be also quite cool because that would help us connect better. You know, because maybe mine could talk to yours and then give me some suggestions on (laughs) what I should say or not say. I'm just kidding. But like more, can it improve our connections? And because eventually I'm not quite yet sure that we will succeed, that our thinking is correct. Um, Because there might be a reality where having a perfect AI friend still makes us more disconnected from each other and there's no way around it. And does not improve any metrics for us uh real metrics meaningful metrics so success is
0: you know we're happier and more connected,
1: yeah
0: i don't know it's, it's sure it's possible there's a reality that i i'm deeply optimistic <laughs> i think uh are you worried um business wise like how difficult it is to um to bring this thing to life to where it's I mean, there's a huge number of people that use it already, but to uh yeah, like we said, in a multi billion dollar company, is that a source of stress for you? Or are you uh, super optimistic and confident? Or do you
1: I don't I'm not that much of a numbers person <laughs> as you probably <laughs> had seen it so doesn't matter for me what, whether like whether we help ten thousand people or a million people or a billion people with that. Um I'd it would be great to scale it for more people, but I'd say that even helping one, I think, with this is such a magical yeah. for me it's absolute magic. I never thought that I we you know would be able to build this, that anyone would ever um, talk to it. And I always thought like, well, for me it would be successful if we managed to help and actually change a life for one person. Like then we did something interesting and you know, how many people can say they did it. And specifically with this very futuristic, very romantic technology. So that's how I view it. Uh, I think for me, it's important to, to try to figure out how not, how to actually be you know, helpful. Cause in the end of the day, if you can build a perfect AI friend, that's so understanding that knows you better than any human out there can have great conversations with you. Um, always knows how to make you feel better. Why would you choose another human? (laughs) You know, so that's the question. How do you still keep building it so it's optimizing for the right thing? Uh, So it's still circling you back to other humans in a way. So I think that's the main, um, I think maybe that's the main kind of source of anxiety and just thinking about about that can be a little bit stressful.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's a fascinating thing. How how to have... um out of a friend that doesn't, like sometimes like friends, quote unquote, or like, you know, those people who have, when they, like guy in the guy universe, when you have a girlfriend that uh, you get the girlfriend and then the guy stops hanging out with all of his friends. <laughs> 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 so like, obviously the relationship with the girlfriend is uh, fulfilling or whatever, but like, you also want it to be what she like, makes it more enriching to hang out with the guy friends or whatever it was there. Anyway, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a fundamental problem in choosing the right mate and probably the, the fundamental problem in creating the right AI system, right? What, uh, let me ask the sexy hot thing on the presses right now is GPT-3 got released with OpenAI. It's the latest language model. They have kind of an API where you can create a lot of fun applications. I think it's, as people have said, it's probably uh, more hype than intelligence, but there's a lot of really cool things, ideas there. with increasing size, you can have better and better performance on language. What are your thoughts about uh, GPT-3 in connection to your work with the open domain dialogue? but in general, like this learning in an unsupervised way from the internet to generate one character at a time, creating pretty cool text.
1: Uh, So we partnered up before, for the API launch. So we started working with them when um, they decided to put together this API. And we tried it without fine tuning and then we tried it with fine tuning on our data. And we work closely to actually optimize uh, this model for um, some of our data sets. It's kind of cool, because I think we're kind of, we're this polygon polygon for <laughs> this kind of experimentation space for experimental space for, for all these models uh, to see how they actually work with people, because there are no products publicly available that do that, that focus on open domain conversations. So we can you know, tests, how's Facebook Blender doing or Mm -hmm. how's GPT-3 doing? Uh, So with GPT-3, we managed to improve by a few percentage points, like three or four pretty meaningful amount of percentage points, our main metric, which is the ratio of conversations that make people feel better. And every other metric across across the field got a little boost. Right now, I'd say one out of five responses from Replica comes from GPT-3. Wow. So our own blender mixes up like a bunch of candidates from different blender, uh, you said? Well, yeah, just the model that I looks it. at <laughs> <laughs> looks at top candidates from different models and then yeah. picks the most the best one. Uh so right now one of five will come from GPT three. That is really great. I mean, uh what's
0: the do you have hope for like do you think there's a ceiling to this kind of approach?
1: So we've had for a very long time, we've used, um, so in the very beginning, we most, it was, uh, most of Replica was scripted and then a little bit of this fallback part of Replica was using a retrieval model. Um, and then those retrieval models started getting better and better and better, with Transformers it got a lot better and we're seeing great results. And then with GPT-2, finally generative models that originally were not very good and were, a very, very fallback option for most of our conversations. We wouldn't even put them in production. Finally, we could use some generative models as well, along, um, you know, next to our retrieval models. And then now we do GPT three. They're almost on par. Um, so that's pretty exciting. I think just seeing how, from the very beginning of, um, you know, from two thousand fifteen, where the first models start to pop up here and there, like sequence, to sequence. Uh, the first papers on that, from my observer standpoint, person who's not, you know, doesn't really, <laughs> is not really building it, but it's only testing it on people basically in my, in my product to see how all of a sudden we can use generative dialogue models mm-hmm. in production and they're better than others and they're better than scripted content. So we can't really get our scripted, hard coded content anymore to be as good as our end to end model. That's exciting. Right? They're much better. Yeah. To your question, whether that's the right way to go, I'm again, I'm in the observer seat, I'm just um watching <laughs> this very exciting movie. Um, I mean, so far it's been stupid to bet against deep learning. So, whether increasing the si- size even more with a hundred trillion parameters will finally get us to the right answer, whether that's the way or whether there should be there, there has to be some other. Again, I'm definitely not an expert in any way. I think, and that's purely my instinct, saying that there should be something else as well for memory. Yeah, uh, no, for sure. But the in.
0: question is, I wonder, I mean, yeah, then, then the argument is for reasoning or for memory, it might emerge with more parameters. It might emerge, larger.
1: But it might emerge. You know, I would never think that, to be honest, like maybe in 2017, where we've been just experimenting with all, you know, with all the, Research that has been coming, that was coming out then, I felt like there's like we're hitting a wall, that there should be something completely different. Yeah. But then transformer models and then just bigger models, and then all of a sudden size matters. At that point, it felt like something dramatic needs to happen, but it didn't. And just the size, you know, gave us these results that to me are, you know, clear indication that we can solve this problem pretty soon.
0: Did uh, fine-tuning help quite a bit?
1: Oh, yeah. Without it, we it wasn't as good.
0: I mean, there there is a compelling hope that you don't have to do fine-tuning, which is one of the cool things about GPT-3. It seems to do well without any fine-tuning.
1: I guess for specific applications, we still want to train it on a certain, like add a little fine-tune on like a specific use case. But um, it's an incredibly impressive uh, thing from my standpoint. And again, I'm not an expert, so I wanted to say that. Yeah, I'm gonna. There will be people then. That...
0: <laughs> yeah, I have, I have access to the API. I've been. I'm gonna probably do a, a bunch of fun things with it. Um, I already did some fun things. Some videos coming up. <laughs> uh, just for the hell of it. I mean, I could be a troll at this point with it. Uh, I haven't used it for a serious application, so it's really cool to see. You're right. You, you are. You're able to actually use it with real people and see how well it works. That's really exciting. Uh let me ask you uh, it's another absurd question, but uh there's a feeling when you interact with replica with an AI system that there's an entity there. Do you think that entity has to uh, be self- aware do, do you think it has to have consciousness to create um a rich experience and uh and a corollary what what is consciousness?
1: I don't know if it does need to have any of those things, but again, because right now you know it doesn't have anything. Again, as again, a bunch Are you of sure tricks about to simulate. Well, I th- <laughs> I'm not sure. Let's just put it this way. But I think as long as you can simulate it, if you can feel like you're talking to to an um, to to a robot, to a machine that seems to be self aware, that seems to reason well, and feels like a person, and I think that's enough. And again, what's the goal? Um, in order to make people people feel better, we might not even need that um, in the end of the day.
0: What about, so that's one goal. What about like ethical things about suffering? You know, the moment there's a display of consciousness, we associate consciousness with suffering. Um, you know, there's a temptation to say, well, shouldn't this thing have rights? Shouldn't this, shouldn't we not uh, you know should we be careful about how we interact with a replica like should it be illegal to torture a replica right all those kinds of things is that is that uh see i personally believe that that's going to be a thing uh like that's a serious thing to think about but i'm not sure when but by your smile i can, i can tell that's not a uh, that's not a current concern but do you think about that kind of stuff about like suffering and torture and ethical questions about AI systems from well, their perspective? I
1: think if we're talking about long game, I wouldn't torture your AI. <laughs> Who knows what happens in <laughs> 5 to 10 years?
0: Yeah, they'll get you off oh, from that, they'll get you back so I'm eventually. I'm
1: trying to be as nice as possible <laughs> and create this ally. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think there should be regulation both way in a way, like I don't think it's okay to torture an AI, to be honest. I am not. I don't even think it's okay to yell, Alexa, turn on the lights. I think there should be some, or just saying kind of nasty, you know, like how kids learn to interact with Alexa in this kind of mean way, because uh, they just yell at it all the time. I think that's great. I think there should be some feedback loops so that these systems don't train us that it's okay to do that in general. Uh, so that if you try to do that, you really get some feedback from the system that it's not okay with that. Um, And that's the most important right now.
0: Let me ask a question I think people are curious about when they look at a world-class leader and thinker such as yourself, as uh, what, uh, what books, technical, fiction, philosophical, had a big impact on your life? And maybe from another perspective, what books would you recommend others read?
1: So my choice, the three books, right? Three books. Yeah. My choice is, um, so the one book that really influenced me a lot when I was building, starting out this company maybe 10 years ago uh, was GB, mm-hmm. <laughs> Got a Bach. And um, I like everything about it, first of all. <laughs> it's just beautifully written and it's so old school and so, um, somewhat outdated a little bit, but I think the ideas in it um about the fact that a few meaningless components can come together and create meaning that we can't even understand. So and this emergent poetry.
0: thing, I mean, complexity—the whole science of complexity and uh, that beauty, intelligence—all interesting things about this world emerge.
1: Yeah, and the yeah, the the Gödel theorem, uh, theorems, and just thinking about like what even these form, you know, even all these formal systems something can be created that we can't quite yet understand. And that from my romantic standpoint was always just, that is why it's important to, maybe I should try to work on on these systems and try to build an AI. Yes, I'm not an engineer. Yes, I don't really know how it works. But I think that's something that something comes out of it that's you know pure poetry. And I know a little bit about that. Um, something magical comes out of it um, that we can't quite put a finger on. <laughs> That's why that book is was was really fundamental for me. Just for I don't even know why. It was just all about this little magic that uh that happens. So that's one that um probably the most important book for replica was Carl Rogers on Becoming a Person. Um and that's really and so I think when I think about our company, it's all about there's so many there's so many little magical things that happened over the course of working on it. Um for instance, I mean, the most famous chatbot that we learned about when we started working on the company was Eliza, which was Weizenbaum, you know, the MIT professor that built um, built a chatbot that would listen to you and be a therapist. Therapist, yeah. Um, and I got really inspired to build Replica when I read Carl Rogers on so Becoming a Person. And then I realized that Eliza was mocking Carl Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> it was Carl Rogers back in the day. But I thought that Carl Rogers' ideas are they're simple and they're not, you know, they're very, very simple, but they're they're maybe the most profound thing I've ever learned about human beings. And that's the fact that um, before Carl Rogers, most therapy was about seeing what's wrong with people mm-hmm. and trying to fix it or show them what's wrong with you. Um, and it was all built on the fact that most people are, all people are fundamentally flawed. We have this, uh, you know, broken psyche and, this is just a, therapy is just an instrument to shed some light on that. And Carl Rogers was different in a, in a way that he finally said that, well, um, it's very important for therapy to work is to create this therapeutic relationship where you believe fundamentally and in inclination to positive growth, that everyone deep inside wants to grow positively and change. And it's super important to create this space and this therapeutic relationship where you give unconditional positive regard Deep understanding, allowing someone else to be a separate person, full acceptance. Um, and you also try to be as genuine as possible in it, as possible in it. And then in his and then for him that was his own journey of personal growth. And that was back in the sixties. And even that book that is, you know, that's coming from years ago. Um, there's a mention that even machines can potentially do that. Um, and I always felt that, you know, creating this space is probably the most uh, the biggest gift we can give to each other. And that's why the book was fundamental for me personally, because I felt I want to be learning how to do that in my life. And maybe I can scale it with, you know, with these AI systems and other people can get access to that. So I think Carl Rogers, it's a pretty dry and a little bit boring book, but I think Would the you idea recommend others try to read it? I do. I think for, just for yourself, for.
0: As a human, not as an AI. As a stuff. human.
1: It's, it's, it is. It is just, and for him, that was his own path of his own personal, of growing personally over years, working with people like that. And so it was work and himself growing, helping other people grow and growing through that. And that's fundamentally what I believe in with our work, helping other people grow, growing ourselves, ourselves um, trying to build a company that's all built on these principles, <laughs> you know, having a good time, allowing some people to work with to grow a little bit. So these two books, and then I would throw in um what we have on our in our in our office when we started a company in Russia, we put a neon sign in our office because we thought that's that's what you know, recipe it? for success. Yeah. If we do that, we're uh, yeah. definitely gonna wake up as a multibillion dollar company. And it was um the Ludwig Wittgenstein quote, The Limits of My Language are the limits of my world.
0: Well, what's the quote?
1: The limits of my language are the limits of my world. Um and I love um, the Tractatus. I think it's just it's just a beautiful. It's a book by Wittgenstein. Yeah, and I would recommend that too. Even although he himself didn't believe in that by the end of his <laughs> lifetime and <laughs> debunked these ideas, but I think I remember once an engineer came in 2012, I think or 13, um, a friend of ours who worked with us and then went went on to work at DeepMind, and he gave talked to us about War Two Vec, mm-hmm. and I saw that I'm like, wow, that's you know, they, they wanted to translate language into, you know, some other representation. And that seems like some, you know, somehow all of that, at some point, I think will come into this one, to this one place. Somehow it just all feels like different people think about similar ideas in different times from absolutely different perspectives. And that's why I like these books.
0: limits <laughs> the of our language is the limit of our world. And... Um...
1: We still have that neon sign. <laughs> <laughs> it's very hard to work with this red light in your it's, face.
0: I mean, on the on the Russian side of things, in terms of uh, language, the limits of language being the limit of our world, you know, Russian is a beautiful language in some sense. There's wit, there's humor, there's pain. Uh, there's so much. We don't have time to talk about it much today, but I'm going to Paris. Uh, uh to uh, talk to Dostoevsky Tolstoy translators um mm-hmm. i think it's this fascinating art like in the art and engineering i mean it's such an interesting process but so from the replica perspective do you what do you think about uh translation how difficult it is to create a deep meaningful connection in russian versus english how you can translate the two languages you 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 speak both
1: Yeah, I think we're two different people in different languages. Um, Even I'm, you know, thinking about... There's actually some research on that. I looked into that at some point because I was fascinated by the fact that what I'm talking about with what I was talking about with my Russian therapist has nothing to do with with what I'm talking about with my English-speaking therapist. It's two different lives, two different types of, um, you know, conversations, two different personas. The main difference between the languages are... Uh, with Russian and English, is that Russian... Well, English is like a piano. It's a limited number of a lot of different keys, but not too many. Mm -hmm. And Russian is like an organ or something. It's just something gigantic with so many different keys and so many different opportunities to screw up and so many opportunities to do something completely tone-deaf. It is just a much harder language to use. Uh, It has way too many way too much flexibility and way too many tones
0: what about the the entirety of like world war ii communism stalin the pain of the people like having been deceived by the dream like all the pain (laughs) of like just the entirety of it is that in the language too does that have to do oh for
1: sure i mean we have words that don't have direct translation that to english that are very much uh um, like we have Abidza, which is sort of like to hold a grudge yeah. or something, but it doesn't have it doesn't you don't need to have anyone to do it to you. It's just your state. Yeah. You just feel like that. You feel like betrayed by other people, basically, but it's not that. And you can't really translate that. Um, and I think that's super important. There are very many words that are very specific explain the Russian being. And I think it can only come from a from a nation that was um, that suffered so much and saw institutions fall time after time after time. And you know, what's exciting, what maybe not exciting, exciting the wrong word, but what's interesting about like my generation, my mom's generation, my parents' generation, is that we saw institutions fall two or three times in our lifetime. Yeah. And most Americans have never seen them fall. Yeah. And they just think that they exist forever. Um, which is really interesting, but it's definitely country that suffered so much and and it makes unfortunately when I go back and I, you know, hang out with my Russian friends, uh, it makes people very cynical. They stop believing in in the future. I hope that's not gonna be the case for so long or something's gonna change again. But I think seeing institutions fall is a very traumatic experience.
0: It makes it very interesting and what's on twenty twenty <laughs> is a very interesting uh, do you think uh, civilization will collapse?
1: <laughs> See, I'm a very practical person.
0: <laughs> we're, we're speaking in English, so like you said, you're a different person in English and Russian. So in Russian, you might answer that differently, but in English, uh <laughs>
1: Well, I'm an optimist and I I generally believe that there is all, all you know, even although the perspectives agree, <laughs> there's always a place for, for a miracle. <laughs> I mean, it's always me been like me that too. with my life. So, yeah, my life's been, I've been incredibly lucky and things just, miracles happen all the time with this company, with people I know, with everything around me. And so, I didn't mention that book, but maybe in search of miraculous or in search for miraculous or whatever the English translation for that is, good Russian book to, for everyone to read. Um,
0: yeah. I mean, if you put, good vibes if you put love out there in the world um miracles somehow happen yeah i believe that too or at least i believe that i don't know uh let me ask the most absurd final ridiculous question of um we talked about life a lot what do you think is the meaning of it all what's the meaning of life
1: i mean my answer is probably going to be pretty cheesy um but I think the state of love is once you feel it um in a way that we discussed it before. I'm not talking about falling in love where um just love to yourself to to other people, to something, to the world, that state of bliss that we experience sometimes, whether through connection with ourselves, with other people, with the technology um there's something special about those those moments. So um, I would say, if anything, that's that's the only. If it's not for that, then for for what else are we really trying to do that?
0: I don't think there's a better way to end it than talking about love, Eugenia. I told you um, offline that there's something about me that felt like this. This was uh, this uh, talking to you, meeting you in person, will be a, a turning point. <laughs> for my life. I know that might be sound weird to, to hear, but it's it was a huge honor to talk to you. I uh, hope we talk again. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you so much, Alex.
0: Thanks for listening to this conversation with Eugenia Cuida, and thank you to our sponsors, DoorDash, Dollar Shave Club, and Cash App. Click the sponsor links in the description to get a discount and to support this podcast. If you enjoy this thing, subscribe on YouTube, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, support on Patreon, or connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman. And now let me leave you with some words from Carl Sagan. The world is so exquisite with so much love and moral depth that there's no reason to deceive ourselves with pretty stories of which there's little good evidence. Far better, it seems to me, in our vulnerability is to look death in the eye and to be grateful every day for the brief, but magnificent opportunity that life provides. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.